Welcome to the Close Set Podcast. My name is Themistocles Alexis, and today we will be revisiting the life, work, and exploits of a great French filmmaker, Jean-Pierre Melville. Subject of today's episode, the great Jean-Pierre Melville, fantastic director, screenwriter, and occasional actor, uh, directed some great films like Le Silence de la Mer, Le Doulos, uh, Le Samouraï, Le Cercle Rouge, and uh, Léon Moret Prêtre, among many others. Uh, and we're going to be looking at his life and work today. A very interesting guy, served in World War II, was a member of the French Resistance. We're going to get to all that shortly. However, at the top of the show, two things I want to get out of the way. First, Melville being a French director, and of course his films being mostly in French. The clips of interviews and the clips of scenes we're going to be playing over the course of this episode will be in French, and I decided to leave it that way. One, because personally, I prefer watching films in the language that they were made. I like to avoid uh, the dubbed voices if I can. Uh, second, our small audience is, uh, is diverse. We've got listeners from pretty much all over the world, some of which are French speakers, and so um, and sort of with, uh, with them in mind, I would like to... Uh, I would much rather keep the the clips and the scenes from the the films and in the language that they were that they were intended in the language that they were made and also for authenticity quite frankly and with that out of the way also I would like to remind you you can find us and subscribe on the Spotify the Apple podcasts and the Google podcasts thank you again for uh, for listening we hit over 100 downloads with our previous episode the Idolupino episode if you'd like to go back and take a listen you can find the show on either of those platforms just look up close set with T Alexis and you'll find us please listen subscribe leave comments all that good stuff uh, and you can find us also uh, on the Instagram at Close Set Podcast is the handle. Uh, you can find updates and uh, little teasers for uh, for all our episodes there. And you can also uh, shoot a DM if you'd like. Those are always welcome. And if you would like to send us an email, you can reach us at closedsetpod at gmail.com. That's closedsetpod at gmail.com. Questions, comments, feedback, constructive criticism, you know the drill. Feel free. And with that said... Let us boogie. Now, Jean-Pierre Melville, very talented guy, uniquely talented guy. During the course of his lifetime, and even even today, many, many years after his death, he's often heralded as a sort of a forebear of the French New Wave, which came to prominence mostly in the late 50s and early 60s. He had mixed feelings about the distinction. We're going to get to that uh, a little later. But also a guy who, who was a huge cinephile. He was a lover of American cinema, film noir, and the old westerns especially, and uh, that shows up a lot in his work. We're going to get into all that as well as we go movie by movie. Uh, but first, uh, let's start at the beginning. Now, Melville was born on October 20th, 1917 in Paris. His real name was not Melville. He was born Jean-Pierre Grumbach, or Grumbach, I suppose, in, in English. He was born to a, a Jewish family from the region of Alsace. For those who don't know, a little brief history lesson. Alsace is a region in France uh, that formerly was uh, was part of Germany. After the First World War, when the Germans took a big L and uh, Europe's borders were essentially reconfigured, Alsace and the region of Lorraine as well uh, became French territory, hence uh, Melville's German-sounding last name, Grumbach. Uh, and so 
came from a Jewish family from Alsace, but grew up in Paris and fell in love with uh, with film as a, as a young child. And his parents had gifted him a little uh, a little 16 millimeter camera as a child, and he would go around shooting his own little family films and so on. So a love of film from a very very young age. His father and his brother Jacques, who was going to come up again later, uh, they were staunch socialists, and they had they had certain aspirations for a young Medville. However, he ended up quitting school. He ended up leaving university and joining the French military in 1937 at the age of 20. And then, of course, World War II broke out in 1939, and he ended up joining the war effort, the French war effort, in 1940. Now, again, another little brief history lesson. The official beginning of World War II is September 1st, 1939, when the Nazis invaded Poland. Now, within a few weeks, I believe, uh, Poland was under wraps. The Nazis had it under occupation, and uh, the Nazi regime had designs on moving into France. However, after World War I, when the Germans fell and the borders were reconfigured, um, the French and German border was fortified with what's known as le, the Maginot Line, La Ligne Maginot. And so to circumvent this, the Nazis uh, pulled a clever move, these pricks. As a way of circumventing the Maginot Line, they went through Belgium and the Netherlands first and made their way into France from there. So Melville joins the war effort. In the early 40s, following the occupation, he joins the Free French Forces. He joins the French Resistance. And obviously the resistance being a covert operation, of course, there was a, there was a, what you, what you would call a sort of puppet government in France. The, uh, the French government that was implemented was basically collaborating with the Nazis. So the French, the, uh, the French administration was not only under a Nazi occupation, but they were, uh, sort of, they were sort of willing collaborators in policing their own people. Melville, as a member of the French resistance, participated in, in many sort of covert missions, if you will, and it was, during his time in the war, that he uh, ultimately took the name Melville. Initially, he went under several code names, one of them being Nano, N-A-N-O. He also fought under the name Jean-Pierre Cartier as an alias. And keep in mind, obviously we know the Nazi regime wasn't too fond of, uh, of the Jewish people. And of course, um, one, because he was working covertly, and two, obviously because he was Jewish and his people were not, were not looked upon too kindly by the Nazi regime, uh, it was sort of in his interest to, to take a pseudonym just for his own safety during his time in the war. So Nano and Jean-Pierre Cartier were two of the, uh, the pseudonyms he took, and ultimately he ended up settling on Jean-Pierre Melville. The name Melville came from the author Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick and Billy Budd, among many other things. And uh, Melville was a writer that, uh, that Jean-Pierre Grumbach uh, admired greatly, and he ended up taking his last name as uh, what's called a nom de guerre, a name of war. J'ai hésité longtemps avant de me donner... Un nom, c'était bien avant la guerre. Le mien est un nom difficile à prononcer, c'est un nom alsacien. Grumbach, ça devient Grimbach dans le meilleur des cas. Je ne dis pas que je ne l'aime pas ce nom-là, mais j'étais terriblement attiré déjà par les consonances anglo-saxonnes. Et comme mes trois dieux, enfin les trois dieux de mon enfance, ont été London bien sûr, Pau ensuite un petit peu plus tard, et puis Melville beaucoup plus tard, enfin juste avant la guerre de 39. Et j'avais envie de prendre le nom d'un homme que j'admirais. Herman Melville était à mes yeux, est encore à mes yeux, un des plus grands écrivains du monde. And so, Melville's brother, Jacques Grumbach, ultimately joined the war effort as well as a member of the French resistance. However, and this is a very sad and tragic story, Melville's brother Jacques had heart problems, he had a weak heart. And he, which normally would have made him physically unfit for military service, that's a, that's a, that's a huge no-no. Somehow, 
he was dead set on enlisting and joining the war effort. I don't know how he became a part of the uh, of the efforts, the French war efforts, but uh, he joined the French resistance as well. And um, unfortunately, in 1942, Jacques Rombach, Melville's brother, they were he was part of a convoy that was going through the Pyrenees to cross over from France into Spain. And Melville had taken this taken this route himself. It was a it was a long and sort of precarious journey that uh, that a lot of people in the resistance took and a lot of people who were trying to flee to safety took as a way of sort of eluding capture. And so Jacques Rombach was part of a convoy and he had an injured leg and a weak heart to boot, which obviously didn't help. And so he and this convoy are heading through the Pyrenees trying to make it into Spain and he um, he basically gave out during the journey. I believe he just collapsed due to exhaustion. And so the convoy keeps it moving and the common belief was that Jacques Rombach had ultimately died of a heart attack, which of course was plausible given that he had he had a weak heart. And it wasn't until years later, years after the war had ended, in fact, I think around in 1950, where Jacques Rombach's remains were discovered. And it was discovered as well that he had, in fact, not died of a heart attack, but that he, he had been shot in the head. And the guide, who was responsible for bringing this, this convoy, this group, of, this group of people to safety, was the one who had actually killed Jacques Rombach and stolen a small sum of francs from, from his person. He had robbed him of the money he had on him. And so this guide was, was found, he was arrested, but ultimately wasn't convicted. And despite this shocking revelation, after this guide was acquitted of k- killing his brother, Melville insisted that he bore this guide no ill will. It's hard to know what to make of that, honestly, because you, in many interviews you hear Melville talk about his time in the war. He would say repeatedly, he's like, he would say that he was, he was embarrassed to admit it, but that he actually had very fond memories of the war. Mais est-ce que vous avez aimé la guerre? Oui, j'ai honte. J'ai honte, oui. Euh, le rare moment où on rencontre la vertu dans une vie d'homme, et Emmanuel, tu vas me dire si je me trompe, c'est dans la vie militaire au contact des officiers de carrière. Car ce sont les vrais moines que j'ai connus. The other thing he had mentioned about his time in the war was that he bore no ill will for the opposition for the other side, and that he in fact had been friendly with several people who had once served in the SS under Hitler's regime, and that they had a sort of fraternal relationship. Est-ce que vous avez de la rancune à l'égard de ceux qui ont été vos adversaires? Absolument pas. Vous n'avez pas le ah, goût pas de la vengeance? Tout. Ah non, pas du tout. Alors, pas du tout. Il vous arrive, des, il vous arrive de rencontrer vos adversaires? Non, vous avez absolument. des amis anciens SS? Ah, oui, absolument. Quels sont vos rapports avec eux? Excellent. Fraternel. I suppose that's something that only people who have been in war, who have been in combat, have been in that kind of precarious situation can understand. I don't know. But ultimately because, and I suppose that's something that shows up in his films, the good guys aren't all the way good and the bad guys aren't all the way bad. There's nuance, there's ambiguity, and that's human nature. And so ultimately he bore no ill will towards the man who had killed his brother. To get back to his time in the war, in 1944, Melville was stationed in Italy. He had been transferred there. The the Allies were fighting the war in Italy. Italy was part of the Axis powers with uh, the Nazis in Japan, and several other countries joined over the course of the war. So the battle had moved to Italy, and it was in 1944, during the Battle of Monte Cassino, I believe, that Melville, for the first time in quite some time, was actually optimistic that the war would soon end, and he made a vow to himself that when the war was over, he would build his own studio and dedicate himself to making films. Even though well before the war, that was, that was something he had planned on doing from a teenager. 
But in any case, he had made this vow to himself. It looked like there was a light at the end of the tunnel, that all this all this chaos and would be over soon. And sure enough, the war ended in 1945. Et qui ne s'est arrêté qu'aux toutes petites heures du matin. J'ai eu vraiment le sentiment, d'une part, que la guerre allait finir, mais d'autre part, aussi qu'elle était gagnée. Depuis le début de la guerre, je me suis surpris à faire des projets dans cette nuit-là. Et tout d'un coup, je me suis dit bon, eh bien, peut-être que je ne serai pas tué, peut-être que la guerre se terminera comme je le crois ce soir. La première chose que je ferai en arrivant à Paris. And so Melville made his way back to Paris. Never went to film school, never worked in the theater, didn't really go the, the traditional route. Was essentially an autodidact filmmaker. He taught himself. And as a lifelong cinephile with encyclopedic knowledge of films and directors and filmmaking techniques, he basically learned on the job. And he said in interviews before that he was never concerned when he started making films. He was never concerned with how to make a film. He was never concerned with filmmaking technique and the only thing he was concerned with learning were the practical aspects of filmmaking whether it's i don't know raising money the logistics of it getting a crew together and all that stuff right je n'avais pas sur le plan technique à apprendre grand chose ce que j'avais à apprendre c'est la façon dont on devait faire un film c'est tout à fait différent ce n'est pas la technique et vous avez pu vous produire vous-même je me suis produit difficilement mais enfin je suis arrivé en achetant de la pellicule les jours on a de l'argent et en tournant comme ça je crois d'ailleurs que le premier film doit être fait avec son sang and so he tried to get work as an assistant director but the french uh, but the unions the crew unions i guess in the, in, in the french cinema i guess they poo-pooed it presumably because he had no experience it's a weird catch-22 that happens even in america when you're trying to get film work it's like you can't you can't get work if you're in the union but you can't get in the union unless you get work it's this strange sort of catch-22 that happens and i'm I'm assuming that something similar happened when Melville tried to get work as an assistant director, but in any case, he ultimately founded his own production company in 1946. And in that same year, he released his first film. This was a short film called 24 Heures dans la vie d'un clown, which means 24 hours in the life of a clown. The title, of course, is very self-explanatory. This came out in 1946. It was a short film. It's under 20 minutes long, and it follows two clown performers. They're a duo, older guys. And the film opens with them finishing their night's performance, going backstage, cleaning up, going back to their lives, and it sort of follows them over the course of the, the following morning up until they hit the stage again the next night. And there is very little dialogue. Melville actually did the narration himself, and you don't hear the two clown performers actually speak until, they're f until the end of the film when they go back on stage the following night and do their, their bit. And it's an interesting film. It's nothing... Um, no one's idea of a masterpiece, let's be honest. But it's raw, it's gritty, it's very documentary-esque, and it's not without a certain style. And there's a, and it's a very there's an intimacy to it all, and that would be that's a recurring theme in Melville's work that we're going to talk about sort of as we go along. And there's a certain warmth to it when you're shooting a story that's that human, that intimate. There's a warmth to the whole thing, and the, and black and white certainly helps with that. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I have a bias. I love black and white movies. The the thing they the uh, the edge they have over color films, at least in my opinion, is that I don't know. When I sit down to watch a black and white movie from the opening frame, there's an intimacy to to black and white. There's a warmth to it, 
it's very difficult to explain, but for whatever reason, as soon as a black and white film begins, when that opening music hits and the opening credits start rolling, I am hooked from the opening frame. It's very difficult to explain, like I said, but in any case, that warmth, that intimacy comes through in this little, this raw, gritty little film. And that style of filmmaking, the sort of, uh, you know, the unvarnished, the raw, the gritty, these sort of simple human stories, would sort of be a bit of a prototype of the French New Wave that came after it, that Melville was repeatedly associated with. And honestly, it's not unlike a few of the directors we talked about earlier in our previous episodes. Certainly John Cassavetes, that documentary-style filmmaking, the handheld camera work, the cinema vérité, as it's called, somewhat pretentiously in the United States. Uh, Carol Rice as well. He started out making short documentary films before he moved on to, uh, to features. And Ida Lupino as well, who we talked about in our previous episode, the wonderful Ida Lupino, who, um, again, shot with very limited budgets, just like Melville, was an independent filmmaker, just like Melville, and uh, again, shot her films in a very similar fashion. And the two were actually contemporaries. They both started making films in the late 40s. In any case, Melville's first feature film came out in 1949, a few years later. Uh, It's called Le Silence de la Mer, The Silence of the Sea. And it's adapted from a novel by Jean Brûler, who also fought in the Resistance, much like uh, Jean-Pierre Melville himself. Uh, and he wrote under the pseudonym Vercors, which was actually a, a battle in World War II. And so this was set, the film is set in 1941, during the Nazi occupation in France. And it follows an uncle and a niece who live together in a humble abode in rural France. And they have, they basically have to house a, a German lieutenant He's been billeted in their house. When a, when, a, when a military officer is billeted, it basically means that he is a, that an officer is assigned shelter, usually in someone else's house, and often to recover from injury. They've been hurt in combat, and so they get assigned to some, some civilian's house so they can convalesce and eventually return to, to active duty. And so the enemy is in their home, quite simply. And the uncle and the niece, in an act of passive defiance, they give this Nazi lieutenant the cold shoulder throughout his stay in their home. And yet this Nazi is undeterred. He's very respectful of them to his credit. He never, he never joins them in their parlor at night in uniform. He is always in civilian clothes. He's very respectful, but he's a loquacious type. The uncle and the niece are sitting there in their parlor, their intimate warm parlor, not giving him the time of day on principle. And over the course of the film, you watch this Nazi lieutenant sort of regale them with, with these monologues of how much he loves the French culture, he loves the French country. He's a, he's a total Francophile. Les Anglais, on pense aussitôt Shakespeare. Les Italiens, Dante. L'Espagne, Cervantes. Et nous, tout de suite, Goethe. Après, il faut chercher. Mais si on dit, et la France Alors qui surgit à l'instant Molière Racine Hugo, Voltaire, Rabelais, ou quel autre Il se presse, il sent comme une foule à l'entrée d'un théâtre, on ne sait pas qui fait rentrer d'abord. Mais pour la musique alors, c'est chez nous. Bach, Handel, Beethoven, Wagner, Mozart. Quel nom vient le premier And he's telling them stories about how his father, his father had wishes of him serving in the military, and he ultimately joined, joined the Nazi army to appease his father, and so on and so forth. 
And the story is told through this Nazi lieutenant's monologues for the most part, and through the narration, which is done by Jean-Marie Romain, who plays the uncle. And later on in the film, this Nazi lieutenant, he goes to Paris, and he falls in love with the city. However, on this visit, he learns from his comrades that the Nazi regime, in fact, plans to ravage France, to subjugate it, to humiliate the French people. And he also learns of their designs on the final solution, which involves, of course, the concentration camps, the extermination of the Jewish people, and so on. And, of course, he's horrified to learn this, and so when he returns to this uncle and niece that he's been staying with in the French countryside, he informs them of the Nazi regime's plans. And of course, he doesn't support these, these designs. And he ultimately chooses to return to combat. But before departing, the uncle leaves him with a quote from the French writer Anatole France. And it goes in French, Il est beau qu'un soldat désobéisse à des ordres criminels. Which translates to, It is a good thing, or it is desired that a soldier disobey criminal orders. And so they don't strike up a friendship with this Nazi lieutenant. However, the uncle does, in a way, break this passive defiance of his to leave him with this quote as a way of urging this Nazi lieutenant to do the right thing. And it's a, it's a lovely film, especially if, if for a first effort. It's wonderfully shot. And he shot this with Henri Deca, who was a great cinematographer who worked with Melville many, many times. We're going to mention his name a few more times over the course of this episode. And it was Descartes' first film as well. The two of them were noobs together, collaborating. And um, it's very intimate. One, because it's very much like a play, because much of the film takes place in the living room of this, this uncle and this niece. So the parameters are very, are very simple. They're very intimate. And it's interesting because the, the uncle and the niece, they don't directly address this Nazi lieutenant until, I think, over an hour in. And you suspect over the course of the film that the niece is sort of developing feelings for this Nazi lieutenant of some kind. It's hard to get a read on her, because most of the time she's hunched over in her chair, knitting, not saying a word, and you never get a close look at her. You never get a look at her square in the face and get a read on what exactly it is she's feeling, what it is that's going on in that head of hers. But she, there is a response to this, to this Nazi's sort of eloquent and Francophile monologues, and she shows it ever so slightly through just these subtle hints of body language. And ultimately, when it comes time for this Nazi lieutenant to leave them, it isn't until she says farewell that the camera abruptly cuts to a close-up of her. And you see that, yeah, she has developed some feelings for this, this humanized Nazi. J'ai fait valoir mes droits. J'ai demandé à rejoindre une division en campagne. Cette faveur m'a enfin été accordée. Demain, je suis autorisé à me mettre en route et à retourner au combat. Je vous souhaite une bonne nuit. Adieu. And it's interesting, one, because obviously Melville fought in the French resistance. He fought against the Nazis, as did the writer of the novel, Jean Brulev. And it gives a sort of humanist or humanizing view of the opposing side. And it's consistent with what Melville said about 
not holding any ill will towards the opposing side. And it's interesting to try to figure out what that is, because this, this Nazi lieutenant, all things considered, does turn out to be a decent man. I don't know, maybe it's because many monsters are, are made, not born. I'll leave that for you to decide. But I highly recommend watching it, it's wonderful. And so the cast of the film, Jean-Marie Robet plays the uncle, and he'd work with uh, Melville again many years later. Nicole Stéphane plays his niece. And even though she says next to nothing, and it's very difficult to get a good read on her, it's a wonderful exercise in restraint as an actor. Because she's ha she has to try very, very hard to not give anything away. And you can only pick up on her feelings for this Nazi lieutenant in just like the subtlest of shifts in body language. And it doesn't look like she does much, but I mean, it's, it's a big ask to show that kind of restraint in a performance. And uh, Nicole Stefan was actually a member of the Rothschild family, but she had relatives who worked in the theater, members of her family. And uh, she also joined the war effort in World War II, the French, world, the French war effort, uh, much like Jean-Pierre Melville and Jean Brulaire, the novelist. Uh, and the Nazi lieutenant is played by Howard Vernon, who is, uh, despite his English-sounding name, was a Swiss actor and later starred in a lot of horror films. And he would work with Melville uh, a couple times after this. He's going to come up again a little later. But he's wonderful. He's, uh, he has a great on-screen presence. This, those sort of sunken cheeks of his and those big eyes. And he's like this sort of towering presence in this small and intimate and cozy living room. And he's very charming. He's wonderful. And the film was very, uh, very well received. It's a great first effort from Melville. It's still very highly regarded today as one of his best. And Jean Brulet, interestingly enough, was reluctant for Melville to direct the adaptation. He, uh, he, was, he didn't really want Melville to direct it, and he actually took some convincing to, uh, to give the film his blessing. Something about a jury of his choosing, watching Melville's finished cut, and them giving a yay or a nay as to whether it was, you know, a respectable adaptation, something like that. But in any case, it's a wonderful first effort from Melville, and I highly recommend it. Now, in the late 40s, in 1949, I believe, Melville builds his own studio, so he kept the promise he made to himself. His vow comes to fruition. It materializes, and he builds his own studio called Jenner Studios, Les Studios de la Rue Jenner. It was, uh, it was built in an abandoned uh, factory in Paris in the 13th Ward, the 13th District, Le 13e Arrondissement, as they would call it. And the first film that was shot there, at least partially shot there, was his second effort, his sophomore effort, called Les Enfants Terribles, which translates to The Terrible Children. This came out in 1950. And it's based on the 1929 novel by Jean Cocteau, who was a very good writer and a filmmaker himself. He directed several films over the course of his life, and he does the narration for this film as well. And this one follows a sort of codependent relationship between two young siblings, Elizabeth and Paul, their late teens, young adulthood. And the two of them are basically left to fend for themselves uh, after their mother dies. And they're living in this cramped sort of Paris apartment, and it follows their relationship as they sort of trying to get one over on each other. They have this secret game that the two of them play with each other. And it's a constant power struggle between them. They belittle each other, they're jousting, they each, each, each one's trying to get the last word over the other. And they later bring two friends into the fold. And the friends are ultimately used as pawns in this never-ending game that they play between them. And it's essentially what you're watching over the course of this film is this power struggle. Qu'est-ce que c'est? Une pince à linge? C'est pour avoir le profil grec. Paul. Voici Paul et Elisabeth, les enfants terribles. Paul, un adolescent mais encore un enfant. Elisabeth, sa sœur aînée, gardienne jalouse et passionnée du monde dans lequel ils vivent enfermés. Un monde fait de jeux, de désirs enfantins, de rêves envoûtants. Un monde bien à eux. Elizabeth, who is a big personality, a dynamic young woman, and she's trying to take the reins on everything, 
and be the dominant personality in her relationship with her brother Paul. Meanwhile, Paul is bedridden. He was hurt in a snowball fight in school. The snowball that he was hit in the chest with may or may not have contained a rock. Likely it did. And the snowball was hurled by a young boy named Dargelos that Paul has a crush on. And so he's bedridden after this snowball fight. He's a, he's a sickly boy, this Paul. And, and after the death of their mother, with Paul being bedridden and Elizabeth being out of work, at least early on in the film, the two of them are left with nothing but each other in this relationship that they have, this strange sort of power struggle. It becomes all-consuming. And so these two friends of theirs come into the fold, Gérard and Agathe. And Paul develops a crush on Agathe because she closely resembles the boy d'Argelos, his, his, his schoolboy crush. And so gradually a romance develops between Paul and Agathe. And Elizabeth, feeling threatened by this, tries to meddle in their romance. And she uses both Agathe and their friend Gérard to sort of gain the upper hand on Paul. And it's a wonderful film. It's some sick shit, really, if you think about it. It's a, it's a very toxic relationship. It's codependent. Although the two of them are sort of willing participants in this game, it's Elizabeth that's the more manipulative of the two. And as the film progresses, and Paul sort of realizes, or as Paul develops feelings for Agathe, he seems a little more reluctant to take part in this game. And Elizabeth picks up on it, and she's not having any of it. And she goes to great lengths to not just keep the game alive, but to come out on top to gain the upper hand. And the results of that are very, are very tragic and very disturbing, quite frankly. I won't give them away, obviously, because I'd like you to... I don't want to spoil it for you. I'd like you to see the film. Elle passait derrière un des paravents, mais il n'y avait plus de chambre chinoise. Et elle voyait Paul couché sur le billard. Dans son rêve, le billard se nommait le morne. Elle atteignait le morne. Elle se penchait vers Paul. Sa main gauche touchait le marqueur automatique. Sa main droite se posait sur celle de Paul. Paul disait, écoute la sonnette des adieux. Ce devait être le tic-tac du marqueur automatique. And so, it follows this, this intense, all-consuming, codependent relationship, this unhealthy relationship between these two young people. And uh, it's got incestuous overtones, of course. And the cast of the film is Nicole Stéphane, and she does a complete 180 from her role in Le Silence de la Mer. She comes back to work with Melville again on this, and she is fantastic. Again, like I said before, she plays Elizabeth, and she's this, this huge personality. She has this way of sort of taking over every space she's in. Yeah, it's a, it's a completely different turn from her after Le Silence de la Mer, and she kills it. She is, she's incredible. And Edouard Dermitte plays Paul, her brother. Uh, Edouard Dermitte uh, only did a handful of films over the course of his life, And he and uh, Jean Cocteau were actually a couple. And I believe Edouard Dermitte was actually cast as Paul at Cocteau's behest. It was him who pushed uh, Melville for Dermitte to be cast. And so he plays Paul. A uh, great performance from him, him as well. And Jacques Bernard plays their friend Gérard. And René Cosima plays Agathe. And Dargelos, she plays both. So she plays the young boy that injures Paul in the snowball fight at the beginning of the film. And then, of course, she shows up a little later as Agathe, Paul's love interest. And apparently, Cocteau wanted Melville to film his adaptation. I believe he had seen uh, Le Silence de la Mer after it had come out, and he was a fan of the film. And so he was all for Melville directing this adaptation. And Cocteau himself uh, actually had to direct a scene on a day that Melville fell ill. However, uh, Melville uh, allowed him to do it on the condition that he follow his instructions to the letter. I believe Cocteau did that. And uh, Henri Deca shot, uh, shot the film yet again. A lot of it was shot on location. Part of it was shot in Melville's uh, newly built studios. And the movie's an anomaly for Melville. 
The film has nothing to do with World War II, the Nazi occupation, the French resistance, and it has it's not set in the sort of noir underground Paris universe that he would sort of develop later in his films. It literally is just about the relationship between two people. And the subject matter and the setting, it's all very foreign to Melville. Like, just watching it on its own, you would never guess that it's a Melville film, and yet it's, it's, it's wonderful. Although Melville himself didn't like the film. He said in several interviews before that he was not a fan of the film. And in fact, after it came out, although the film wasn't, was, was far from a dud, uh, I believe he was disappointed by the reception of it. Apparently, a few critics weren't too kind on the film. And after Les Enfants Terribles came out, he uh, was thinking about quitting filmmaking altogether. And he ended up having a chance encounter with the director Jacques Becker, who directed Le Casque d'Or uh, and Touché pas au Grisby, among many other things. The two of them uh, had a discussion, and Becker actually turned out to be quite fond of Les Enfants Terribles. And it was that, that encounter that sort of that poo-pooed Melville's plans of quitting the business. <laughs> Unfortunately, his next film... Uh, is one of a couple duds in his catalog. There weren't many. Pretty good batting average for Melville, I gotta say. But this one shit the bed, quite frankly. Uh, this one is called When You Read This Letter, Quand tu liras cette lettre. It came out in 1953. And this was very much a director for a hired job. Uh, Melville himself didn't write the script, unlike uh, most of his projects. He usually adapted them himself and wrote the screenplays himself. And in any case, this was written by a guy named Jacques Deval. And it follows a nun-to-be, a young woman who's in a convent, and before she can take her vows as a nun, she has to return to civilian life and care for her younger sister after their parents uh, die suddenly in a car accident. And it follows the two of them as they both have different, uh, different encounters with a young playboy, uh, played by Philippe Lemaire, who is basically a taker. And he basically bounces around from woman to woman, takes what he wants from them, and uh, moves on to the next. And at the beginning of the film, he is engaged in a sort of, uh, in a dalliance and an affair with, uh, with an older woman who is in the middle of a divorce. And he eventually shifts his sights first to the younger sister of the duo, and then to the older sister. And so, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this film, because it's not very good. Uh, but it's a shitty melodrama, quite frankly, and it's not... If there's anyone you can avoid watching in Melville's catalog, it's this one. I mean, it's a decent cast. Juliette Greco plays Thérèse, the, uh, the nun-to-be, who, uh, who leaves the life to take care of her sister. She later became a, a very popular singer. She had some hits in the 1960s in France. And uh, Philippe Lemaire plays Max, the young playboy. The two of them were actually uh, husband and wife in real life. They were married in 1953, so I'm assuming they met during the making of this film. I'm not 100% sure. They were only married for a few years. And uh, Philippe Lemaire uh, ended up committing suicide in the early 2000s, in his late 70s, unfortunately. Uh, Yvonne Sanson plays the older woman with whom Philippe Lemaire's character is having uh, an affair, a fling, uh, early on in the film. Irene Galter plays the younger sister to Juliette Greco's character. She was actually an Italian actress. Her name was uh, Irene Pat uh, Patuzzi. Uh, but I'm not a fan of her performance in this. She's not, she's not great, honestly. She's kind of wooden and sort of kind of amateur hour, to be honest. And uh, Daniel Cauchy shows up in this. He plays young bellhop, who's a bit of a, who's an associate of Philippe Lemaire's character, Max. He, he works at the hotel at which this older woman is staying. And Daniel Cauchy would actually work with Jean-Pierre Melville again. We're going to mention him a little later. Uh, but yeah, it's a, it's a shitty melodrama. It's odd because the film opens with, with, the, with Juliette Greco finding out that her parents have been killed in an accident. And yet over the course of the film, you never show her or her sister grieving the death of her parents. Like she makes the adjustment. She has to leave the convent to go care for her sister. But you never see them in mourning. You never see them grieving the death of their parents. They don't seem to be very shaken up by it at all, which is strange, one would think. And also there's too much focus on Max, on Philippe Lemaire's character. Oddly enough, I think uh, I think Thérèse, Juliette Greco's uh, nun-to-be should have been the focus of the film, but they spend way too much time following this fucking 
this immoral playboy around as he just sort of takes what he wants from women, you know, and is basically irredeemable, it seems. Uh, but in any case, it's, uh, it's another anomaly from Melville. It's a classic melodrama from him, and um, it's very unlike the rest of his work. And he himself was not uh, was not a fan of this one, much like Les Enfants Terribles. And it was basically a director for hire job. It wasn't sort of it wasn't really a passion project for him. He probably just did it for the money, quite frankly, to finance uh, his next film, which is what many independent filmmakers did over the course of their careers. Certainly, Ida Lupino did, and uh, John Cassavetes as well. Although they did it with acting jobs, not directing jobs. Uh, but in any case, on to the next. This next film proved to be a bit of a breakthrough for Melville. This was this was really him coming into his own. Uh, it's called Bob le Flambeur, which translates to Bob the Gambler, Bob the High Roller. Uh, and this came out in 1956. And this is Melville in his bag. This is him really sort of figuring out his own style. And it sort of set the blueprint for a lot of the... Uh, one, for a lot of his own films that came later, and two, for the French New Wave that emerged just a couple of years after this. But before we get to all that... So the film is set in Montmartre, in the Paris area. And it follows an ex-con... Bob, obviously, and he's got a he's got a gambling habit. He's a compulsive gambler, and he's on a terrible slump. He's losing money left and right, to the point where it leads him to sort of orchestrate a daring casino heist. And so you watch him putting this heist together. He enlists a bunch of people. He enlists a safe cracker. They find a financial backer, and so on and so forth. And the heist is all ready to go down. Meanwhile, a friend of his, who is a cop, has caught wind of their their plans to rob the casino through an informant. And so in any case, they prepare for the heist, Bob is ready to go, he's all decked out in his tuxedo, right? He's supposed to go into the casino and mingle with the gamblers and so on and so forth. But of course, being the compulsive gambler that he is, and also in part to establish cover, he sits down and starts to play, he starts to gamble. And ironically enough, on a night that he is supposed to rob a casino, because he's running out of money, his fortunes actually begin to turn, and he takes the casino for an exorbitant sum. It's a very, it's a very simple story. Um, it's very meat and potatoes, but... But it's a wonderful film, and like I said, it's Melville coming into his own. Melville made a habit in many of his films to sort of bring you into his Paris, to show you a different side of Paris, the underbelly, the underground, the gritty, the gritty side of Paris, or Montmartre in this case. And you see the handheld, the handheld camera work, the, the natural lighting, these would, these would all become staples, the long takes, which I love, those never get old for me. All those would become staples of the French New Wave that came after it, hence his never-ending association with that movement, even though he wasn't really a part of it. The critics sort of anointed him a, a forebear of it. And so Melville reunites with Henri Deca for this. Henri Deca shot it, and it's wonderfully shot. Like I said, I, I love long takes, as I mentioned pretty much every episode. And uh, Melville himself did the narration. And the cast of this film, Roger Duchesne plays Bob. And I want to talk about him for a minute, because this is a pretty crazy story. So initially, Melville wanted the great French actor Jean Gabin to play the part. But Jean Gabin, of course, being a big star, was too expensive. A lot of Melville's films were shot on a limited budget. Of course, being an independent filmmaker, you can't just throw money at whatever it is you want. So Jean Gabin ultimately proved to be a no-go. He was too pricey. And Roger Duchesne, years before this film was made, during the war, was actually suspected of being a Nazi collaborator. A collaborator of the Gestapo, in fact. And apparently he had had a gambling habit in real life. And apparently it was his gambling habit that, that, that caught the Gestapo's eye reportedly. And in any case, he was suspected of being a Nazi collaborator during the war, and after the war, there was a bit of a purge from the industry of, of collaborators. And so Duchesne was shunned from the industry, and ultimately ended up doing time for robbing a bank. And by the time Melville found him to cast him in this film, uh, Duchesne was down and out. He was basically setting, selling scrap metal, from what I've read. Although Melville did want him cast in the film, again, another strange turn given Melville's history in the resistance. And yet he pursued Roger Duchesne, 
after uh, Jean Gabin proved to be a no-go, and he um, he cast him in this film. And uh, Duchesne only did one more film after that. He lived many, many years after the making of this film. Uh, I believe he died in the 90s, but in any case, he was, he was damaged goods. That said, he is wonderful as Bub. And he doesn't really look like a sort of... Even though he plays an ex-con, he doesn't look like your classic sort of hardened criminal. He's very sort of... Very sort of debonair and well put together, not a hair out of place. Got a lot of class. And uh, honestly, I think he was he was perfect as Bub. His real-life transgressions notwithstanding. Um, so Roger Duchesne plays Bub. Daniel Cauchy comes back. After when you read this letter. He shows up again. He plays a sort of uh, young protege of Bub's. Polo and Polo's father and Bub were good friends. And of course, he uh, Bub takes Polo under his wing after the death of his father. And uh, Polo, of course, looks up to Bob and wants to be a wants to be another Bob and so on and so forth. And he tries to win the affection of a young girl. And in order to sort of get into her good graces and impress her and get her to sort of give her the time, give him the time of day, he basically confines in this young woman that the heist is going down. And that's how, of course, the the police eventually get involved through the grapevine. J'ai connu des tas de filles, mais une comme toi, jamais. On dirait que tu te fiches de tout. Tu n'aimes rien dans la vie. Tu crois ça Te moque pas. Tu vois pas comme je t'aime Personne ne t'y oblige. Qu'est-ce qu'il faut donc que je fasse pour te le prouver De grandes choses. Quoi, par exemple Décroche-moi la lune. Je vais faire mieux. Si je te disais que je vais dévaliser le coffre du casino de Deauville le matin du Grand Prix, et ça rien que pour toi. Combien y a-t-il dans ce coffre C'est tout ce que tu trouves à dire. Oui, c'est tout. And the young woman that Daniel Cauchy is trying to uh, to woo is played by Isabelle Corey. She was 17 years old at the time. She was actually a model in her youth, and this was her film debut. She didn't have any acting experience or any formal acting training. And it kind of shows, to be honest. It's not a great performance from her, although she does... She, she does do what she has to do, I suppose, as a sort of young, vacuous human being. She's a total materialist. She just wants the good life, and she just sort of bounces around to any man who can show her a good time and sort of, you know, shower a bit of dough and, and a fun night on the town on her. And rounding out the main cast is Guy de Combe, who plays a neighborhood cop and is an old friend of Bub's. The two of them go back many, many years, although Bub is not an informant, the two of them. And Guy de Combe actually played the, uh, the teacher Sourpuss, in the great film The 400 Blows, Les 400 Coups, the great uh, François Truffaut film, a couple of years after this. And so it's a classic film noir story, and the aesthetic of it is, one, reminiscent of film noir, but it's a little grittier than that. It's not quite as polished. And again, that would sort of define the aesthetic of the French New Wave, at least early on, those early films of the late 50s and early 60s. Because the, it's the critics who sort of tied Melville to the French New Wave, even though he wasn't actively a part of it. And initially, he welcomed it. He didn't mind that distinction. And then he, he later said in interviews that he came to shun the distinction because the critics, after sort of anointing him this forebear, he basically just sort of got lumped into this group of growing filmmakers. And he, said, he says jokingly that I found out that I had been lumped in, that I, that I had given birth to 182, 192 of these filmmakers. And it basically made him sort of shun the distinction. And the film was very well received. It was his first, his first hit, basically. And it was well received not just in France, but, uh, but abroad as well. And so this leads us to our next film, called Deux Hommes dans Manhattan, Two Men in Manhattan. It's written and directed by Melville, so Melville went back to, uh, well, he wrote Bob Le Flambeur, of course, and uh, he wrote this script as well. 
And it stars Melville himself, the only one of his films that he actually acted in. Like I said, he was an occasional actor, had a handful of roles uh, over the course of his life. But of his own work, this was the only one that he actually acted in. And so it's Jean-Pierre Melville and Pierre Grasset play two French journalists in New York. And it follows them over the course of a night in Manhattan as they're trying to track down a missing United Nations diplomat. And they find out that this this delegate is a, is a bit of a ladies' man, even though he's married. He's got a lot of lady friends, and so the two of them, these two journalists, try to track down this missing diplomat by going to each of his lady friends one by one and seeing if they can get a line on him. Qui est la maîtresse de Fèvre Berthier? La maîtresse de Fèvre Berthier. Attends, voilà. Là. Tiens, choisis. D'après toi, c'est laquelle? Ça, mon pote, après la photo, je sais plus, on m'a pas invité. Dépêche-toi, on va aller voir toutes les trois. Tu veux te les faire dédicacer T'as deviné juste. And then, of course, there's this, this moral dilemma that comes in, you know, the classic sort of journalistic integrity versus the sort of trying to make a quick buck on a hot story. And it's a very simple story, much like Bob Le Flambeur. This one's a little too simple, actually, for its own good. But uh, we'll get to that in a second. The main cast, like I said before, Jean-Pierre Melville plays Moreau, uh, the reporter. Pierre Grasset plays the photographer of his, who's a bit of an alcoholic and a bit of a ladies' man himself. And the two of them are sort of running through Manhattan late at night trying to, uh, to find this missing delegate. Christiane Eude plays the diplomat's daughter. Ginger Hall plays uh, a lady friend of the missing diplomat, who's an actress. And Monique Hennessy plays an escort. Monique Hennessy only did a few films over the course of her life. I, only th- I think she only has, she was only in four films, and uh, three of them were by Jean-Pierre Melville. And in any case, this is the, I believe this is the first of, uh, of the three that they made together. But in any case, Jean-Pierre Melville actually wanted Pierre Grasset to play Moreau, his part. And it was Grasset himself uh, that convinced him to play Moreau. Grasset actually wanted the part of the photographer, and he actually sold Melville on the idea that uh, there was actually a lot of Melville himself in the character of Moreau. After Grasset, Melville didn't really have someone lined up to play Moreau, and so he stepped in. Melville's a decent actor. I mean, he's competent, at the very least. He's, he's good. Not a master thespian by any means, and Melville, in fact, himself uh, said in interviews that he didn't consider himself to be a good actor at all. Uh, but Pierre Grasset is really good in this. I, really, I quite like him, and the two of them uh, would remain friends, and they worked together again a little while later. Uh, this was not shot by Henri Descartes. This was actually shot by a guy called, uh, a guy called Nicholas Heyer, who later worked with... Uh, Melville Le Doulos, another very good cinematographer. And this one is basically, like I said before, Melville had a fascination with America, American culture, American cinema, the old film noir, and that shows up repeatedly in his work. And this is, I guess, and this film, I guess, above all else, is basically a love, a love letter to all that. You know, its exteriors are shot in Manhattan, the story is set in Manhattan, it's the two of them running through the city at night, and you see the New York lights and the jazzy score and the sort of the film noir story, and the visuals are lovely. Uh, but beyond that... The story itself is a little too simple for its own good. You don't really feel like there's anything at stake beyond them just finding this missing diplomat. And sure enough, they do. I'm not going to say what happens or what ensues beyond that. Uh, but it never really feels like there's anything there's anything important happening. You're basically just following these two guys around. And as lovely as it is to watch, yeah, it lacks... Uh, how can I say this? It's a little too simple for its own good, dare I say. Although, there is a lovely visual... So Nicholas Heyer shot it, like I said, and there's a great 
Yet again, I do this pretty much every week, but there's a wonderful one-shot take. So their search, the two journalists' search, leads them to a recording studio. One of the missing diplomats' lady friends is a jazz singer. So they go to, they go to this recording studio at Capitol Records, and it cuts to a shot of the recording session in the studio. And it begins, I believe, on the vibraphone player, and it slowly moves through the session, through the studio, and it passes the session musicians one by one, and it gradually makes its way to the singer who is in fact behind the piano, and it's lovely. And the, and the jazz recording itself is wonderful. There's a street in Manhattan With a house that has no window pane And a land that burns all The um, the exteriors were shot in New York, and the interiors were shot uh, in France in the studio. And Medville himself apparently didn't like shooting on location. He was a homebody. He enjoyed he enjoyed the make believe of shooting in the studio. After the success of Bob Le Flambeur, he actually had a bigger budget to work with. It had made him a bit of a, it had gotten him some buzz, right? So he had he had more cabbage to work with. Unfortunately, uh, this film turned out to be a total dud. Not many not many people went to see it. First of all. And second, the uh, the critics gave it a bit of a lukewarm reception. But it's not a bad film. Again, it doesn't feel like there's much at stake. It doesn't feel like there's much going on. And there isn't really. But it is, if only for the visuals, it is it is worth a watch, I'd say. And Pierre Grasset is great, like I said. Now the next one, Melville turned things around with his next one. In 1961, his next film came out. It's called Léon Morin Prêtre. Léon Morin Priest, basically. And it's based on a novel by Beatrix Beck, who is a Belgian writer, I believe. It was based on her novel, The Passionate Heart. And uh, Medville wrote the adaptation, as per usual. And it follows a woman played by Emmanuel Riva. The character's name is Barney. And it follows this woman. She's a little jaded. She's a bit of a cynic. She's a staunch communist. She's sexually frustrated. She's a widow. She's uh, Her husband, her dead husband, was Jewish. She herself is a lapsed Catholic. And she's living in a, a small town in a village in rural France during Nazi occupation or World War II. And it follows this woman as she meets a young Catholic priest in her village. And a friendship develops between the two of them. And she ultimately develops romantic feelings for him. And gradually, not only does she develop romantic feelings for him, but her faith, her Catholic faith, is sort of rekindled. Jéhovah, Dieu des Juifs et des Chrétiens. Bien sûr. Que Jéhovah soit Dieu le Père, je dois y penser pour ne pas l'oublier. C'est absurde. Vous n'êtes pas la seule. Ce n'est pas par hasard que Jésus a choisi le psaume 22. Il l'a choisi parce qu'il s'accorde spécialement à lui. Puisqu'il y est dit aussi... Ils ont percé mes mains et mes pieds. Ils partagent entre eux mes vêtements. Et ils tirent ma robe au sort. N'oubliez pas que l'Ancien Testament, c'est le livre des Juifs. Celui dont s'est nourri le Messie. Jéhovah avait choisi le Christ de chair et d'os pour sa vie terrestre. Par lui, il s'était donné une jeunesse. Il a choisi pour mourir la force de l'âge. Et c'est pour ça que, préservé par ce sang de jouvence, 
Dieu ne vieillira jamais. And it's 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 an interesting film. For one thing, it's the portrait of life in rural France during the time of the war, during the Nazi occupation. That much is obvious. But really, I think it's just about a woman who needs. It's a love story, basically, even though it's somewhat unrequited. Because you have this woman, she is she is very clearly sexually frustrated, and it's established in a very interesting way. She works in an office, and at the beginning of the film, you see her fawning over, not fawning over, but she's admiring a female coworker of hers. She basically chalks up her attraction to this woman to a delicate masculinity, she calls it. There's a sort of masculine quality that, that attracts her to, to this female co-worker of hers. If Sabine me fascine, it's because she resembles a young man. But doué de charme singulier. D'une virilité. Délicatement. Féminisé. And so that's how it's established that she is in need of, you know, some loving, some sex, some, some male companionship at the very least. And initially, she encounters this priest, played by the great Jean-Paul Belmondo, who passed away recently, may, may rest in peace. She encounters this priest, Léon Moret, in an act of defiance. Again, the communist ideology sort of conflicted with religious beliefs. She's a lapsed Catholic herself, and she waltzes into this church in her town as a sort of act of contempt, as an act of defiance. She's there to sort of stick it to the clergy. And she ends up in the confessional and she meets this priest and the two of them actually go at it. They have a discussion. They start jousting. And Belmondo's priest, Léon Moret, actually proves to be a more than worthy adversary. <laughs> and the two of them have discussions. A friendship develops. He lends her some books, tries to educate her about the faith. They have discussions about, you know, God and Catholicism and so on and so forth. And it becomes very apparent that pretty much all the women in the village, or many of the women in the village, need companionship because, quite frankly, there just simply aren't that many men around. Again, this is during the wartime in Nazi-occupied France. A lot of these women are widows. Their husbands have either been... Their husbands have gone off to war. Many of them have been killed. And so a lot of them are in the same boat as Emmanuel Rival's character, Barney. They, they're just longing for some companionship. And so as she develops a relationship with this priest, she begins to have feelings for him, romantic feelings for him. And yet, he is a devout man of the cloth. He is unwavering. Plus Mademoiselle Sabine à présent. À la bonne heure, ça va déjà mieux. Gardez les gens quand on vous parle. Si seulement vous appeliez Dieu comme vous appelez le mal. There seems to be a mutual attraction between them. Although it's shown from Belmondo's priest ever so slightly. Much like Nicole Stéphane's character in Le Silence de la Mer. And yet, he remains a devout man of the cloth. He doesn't waver. Whatever attraction he has for Barney, he does not give in to it. And yet the two of them remain friends. It appears as though he's given her something to believe in, something to help her get through the war at the very least. And whatever your feelings on organized religion are, he appears to have changed her life for the better. And so the cast of this film, Emmanuel Riva, who was in the great Alain Reznet film Hiroshima Mon Amour, a couple of years prior to this. And she actually got nominated for an Oscar much later in life in 2012 for a film called Amour. I believe she was in her 80s by then. A wonderful actress, and she's, she's excellent in this. Je vous écoute. J'ai... J'ai essayé d'induire au mal 
Ne laissez pas vos phrases en suspens si ça vous fait rien. J'ai voulu entraîner un prêtre à enfreindre ses vœux. J'ai voulu enfreindre moi-même le neuvième commandement. Voilà. Demain, vous verrez Daniel. Sachez que votre visite lui fasse un peu de bien. Vous ferez du bien mutuellement. Comme pénitence, vous lirez chaque soir à genoux une page du livre dont vous avez si bien écouté le commentaire. Et maintenant, allez tout à fait en paix. J'allais presque en paix. And she has to show you a lot of different colors. She has to show you a lot of restraint. In some parts, she's unraveling. Her character, her performance takes a lot of different turns, and it's she's wonderful in this, and, and a beautiful woman, a naturally beautiful woman. She was in her 30s when this was made. Jean-Paul Belmondo, like I said before, he was coming off the film Breathless, à bout de souffle, that had come out in 1960. It's considered a classic film, a seminal film in the French New Wave, directed by Jean-Luc Godard, and it made Belmondo a star. He was one of... He was one of the most beloved and bankable stars in France during his time. And so he had had his breakout role when Léon Morin Prête came out. And again, a completely different turn from him. He was basically he was basically the coolest man in French cinema after Breathless came out. And and Melville basically put him in a collar and a frock and cast him as a priest. And he's wonderful in this. Again, it's just because he plays a priest and there is a mutual attraction that he can't act on. It's a, it's a it's a it's a wonderful balance for him from him showing warmth and restraint at the same time, which is easier said than done, I would say. Uh, Irene Turk plays uh, a friend and co-worker of Emmanuel Rivas' character, Barney. Uh, the two of them work together in an office, and initially they they have a bit of a confrontation in the office in which they work. And uh, But from there, the two of them actually become friends, and the two of them actually begin to confide in this priest. She, she begins... She develops a bit of a relationship with him as well. She begins to rely on his his company, his companionship, his advice, his guidance. And uh, Irene Turk was actually uh, she was a beauty queen. She was Miss France 1954, and she had actually had she had she had acted in several dozen films in a pretty short amount of time. She had had a prolific film career up until unfortunately she uh, she died tragically in a car accident at the age of 36. And rounding out the main cast is um, Patricia Gozzi, who plays uh, Emmanuel Rivas, Rivas' young daughter France. And she's sent away to live with others in the village, friends, acquaintances, older people, because, like I said before, uh, Emmanuel, Emmanuel Rivas' dead husband was Jewish, therefore her daughter is half-Jewish, and therefore is a target for the Nazi regime. And so just to keep her safe, she sends her daughter away to, to live with, with other people, with other families, acquaintances. Also, Howard Vernon shows up again briefly. He shows up in Bob Le Flambeur, I forgot to mention. He plays the backer of the of the casino heist. And he shows up again briefly the third time he and Melville work together. He has a brief cameo, uh, yet again as a Nazi officer. Much like in uh, Le Silence de la Mer. Sort of a cheeky tip of the cap, if you will. And it's interesting, Melville had actually wanted to adapt Beatrix Beck's novel for the screen for many years. And he had been undecided on who he would cast to play the priest, Léon Moret. And Melville actually has a small part in the Godard film Breathless, which made Belmondo a star. He shows up as a, as a famous writer named Parvulesco, that famous scene with him and Gene Seberg. And so Melville had acted in Breathless for a little bit. Belmondo starred in it, uh, and they had met briefly during the making of the film, although they, they didn't have any scenes together. And immediately upon meeting Belmondo, Melville, Melville knew that he would, he would be perfect to play the, his priest. And he put Belmondo in this role, and it was uh, the beginning of, of a great working relationship between the two of them. They made three films together, which we're going to talk about in a bit. And Henri Decas shows up yet again. He comes back to shoot this film, again with the long takes, these lovely one-shot, intimate long takes 
and there's a great one there's a great one at the beginning where Emmanuel Riva's character Barney is talking about her her co-worker Sabine and describing her attraction to her that's the beginning of the film and then there's another one that's really wonderful where Belmondo shows up to her house a friendship between the two of them has developed by this time and she has developed romantic feelings for him by this time as well and Belmondo's character shows up to her house and they're sitting in her humble abode at her kitchen table and Belmondo is sort of regaling her telling her about his youth telling her about his parents and what a sort of rambunctious kid he was and he's just telling her these childhood stories and the camera is gradually ever so slowly moving around the table and it's a one it's a wonderful scene it's very sweet and it's beautifully shot Pourquoi votre père était-il si dur Pourquoi votre père était-il si sévère C'était pas mon père, mon père ne m'a jamais touché. Qui alors Ma mère. And also, uh, Volker Schlondorf, the great German director, worked as the assistant director on this. He and Medville worked together a couple times, this was his first. And uh, Volker Schlondorf, for those who don't know, directed the great film The Tin Drum and also directed a wonderful adaptation for the screen of Death of a Salesman with Dustin Hoffman, Kate Reed, John Malkovich, Stephen Lang. It's a wonderful, wonderful adaptation. Uh, it came out in the mid-80s, but in any case, he worked with Melville on this and as, as an assistant director, and it's regarded as one of Melville's best films, although the, the sort of, by now, the French New Wave was in full effect. It was all the rage, and a lot of the, a lot of the directors of the French New Wave actually had associations with the film journal, the Cahiers du Cinéma, and uh, the sort of purists, the French New Wave purists of the Cahiers cinema weren't, weren't too fond of this film. But it's, but it's wonderful. And it's ultimately a love story, I think. As much as it is a portrait of just life in Nazi-occupied France and rural France. And that brings us to the next film Melville and Belmondo would make together. Uh, Le Doulos. This came out in 1962. Doulos, for those who don't know, is, uh, is a slang term, one for a hat, and it's a slang term, most importantly, for a police informant. And the English title for this film was called The Finger Man. And we go back to the underworld for this. So after Bob Le Flambeur and Two Men in Manhattan, we go back to the sort of seedy criminal underworld of Paris. And this is adapted by a novel by Pierre Le Sou, a novel of the same name, and it follows two characters played by Jean-Paul Belmondo and Serge Reggiani. So Belmondo plays a crook named Cillien, and Reggiani plays an ex-con named Maurice Fougel. Fougel gets out of prison. He gets revenge on an associate that he suspects of killing his wife while he was in prison. And he gets put onto a burglary job in an affluent area of Paris. But the police have been tipped off. So before they can complete the heist, he and his partner have to make a run for it. His partner is shot and killed. And Fogel suspects Cillien, Belmondo's character, of having ratted him to the police. Because Cillien helped Fogel prepare for this burglary. And is one of just a few people who had any knowledge of it. And so for much of the film, you suspect Cillien, Belmondo's character, of being a police informant. Meanwhile, Cillien, he's trying to make a move and take out a pair of crime bosses, one of whom is dating a former flame of his. And he tries to take them out, set them up, reunite with his own flame, supposedly to leave the criminal life. And of course, Fogel suspects him of being an informant. He's stuck in jail, trying to plot his revenge, and so on and so forth. And also, the police are investigating a jewel heist. This is a separate case. And so between the jewel heist, in which the two criminal bosses and Fogel's dead associate are involved, the police are investigating a jewel heist, the murder of Fogel's associate, and the failed burglary. And through all this, 
Cillien is trying to, one, get Fogel out of prison and clear his name, two, take out these two criminal bosses, and three, reunite with his former flame and take off and leave the criminal life. Meanwhile, Fogel is trying to plot his revenge because he suspects Cillien is the one who dropped a dime on him, and yet you're never really certain, even though it appears over the course of the film or as the film progresses, that Cillien just might not be who he appears to be. You're never really quite certain of his motives. You keep thinking there's an angle here. His intentions can't be that pure. Or maybe he still is an informant. You really can't get a read on Cillien. T'es sûr que t'es pas encore en train de faire l'idiot? Faut que j'attende d'être sûr avant de me lancer sur une affaire. J'en ai assez de loger nourri par Thérèse. Mais je t'ai dit que j'avais les moyens de te dépanner. T'es le deuxième en 24 heures. Croyez tous que je suis fini. J'ai jamais dit que t'étais fini. Et de toute façon, je te donnerai rien pour rien. Je simplement que tu saches que je viens d'acheter une propriété et que d'ici peu... Tu auras besoin d'un régisseur. De toute façon, ça se verra moins la charité. Mon moment, t'auras du travail, ce temps Akin. Je ferai pas de cadeaux. D'accord. On en parlera dans 20 ans. And that's the intrigue of the film, is that the plot takes all these twists and turns and it thickens and all these cases sort of come together. And it isn't until close to the end of the film that you that you find out what where Cillian is coming from, what kind of guy he is. And it's a wonderful film. And it's, a, a, again, another another great turn for Belmondo. You go from, he went from being the coolest man in French cinema to playing a priest, you know, this sort of restrained performance, to Le Doulos, where he is a suspected police informant, and he's sort of, it's hard to get a read on him, he's pretty stone-faced. And he's fantastic in this, and it's a great, this is another thing, again, you want to talk about the intimacy and the warmth of these sort of Melville films and the way he sort of hooks you into his universe. And the opening, the film opens, and it's a one-shot sequence while the opening credits are playing, and you see Serge Reggiani's character, Fogel, he's walking down an underpass. And it's this grimy underpass, and you see he's got the trench coat on and the fedora, and there's the jazzy score playing as the credits are rolling, and you know exactly what kind of universe this is, and you are immediately hooked from the jump. You are immediately along for the ride. And I love that about Medvedev's films, and he... And again, some more lovely long takes. Nicholas Heyer comes back to shoot this. And again, there's this... There's this the way they play with light and shadow, especially when, when Cillian and Belmondo's character is introduced, uh, he shows up to, uh, to Fogel's apartment, and the door opens. And the way they play with the light and the shadow, his, uh, Belmondo's face is obscured. So immediately there's an air of mystery surrounding his character, and it's a great introduction to him. And again, uh, Schlondorf, Volker Schlondorf comes back again to work as an assistant director on this, that he reunites with Melville again, yet again. And there, there's some more, some more great long takes. I mean, again, it would become a staple, not just of Melville's work, but of the French New Wave. The two police interrogations, especially with when, when Belmondo is brought in for questioning and the camera is sort of moving slowly as the cop is walking through the room and, and interrogating him. And there's another great scene in the kitchen where Fogel and his girlfriend Thérèse are sort of talking about the job and she, well, she's in the kitchen making him something to eat. They're sort of having this discussion about this burglary that's about to go down. And um, there's another thing that happens here, and it's a recurring theme in Melville's work that's going to show up, is that it's one of many Melville films where you follow these criminals who are on the wrong side of the law but yet operate with a certain code of conduct. They seem to be somewhat emotionally inept. They're not the warmest of people. And they don't seem to have much time for pleasantries and so on. Or for regular civilian life, for that matter. And yet, whatever their exploits are, Melville's crooks have... They operate by a code. They're men of principle to a certain degree. And I suppose that's informed by his time in the war. You have men fighting for their lives, often committing horrible acts that many of us can't even imagine. And yet, they're men that share a bond with each other. 
there's a camaraderie there. There's an unspoken understanding. There's there's a code of conduct that they hold sacred. And uh, so that's uh, that's all I got for Le Dulos. It's a one, it's a wonderful film. It was it was very well received by the critics, and it did well commercially. And it's beloved by by filmmakers. That's another thing. Melville Melville's work was very inspirational to a lot of filmmakers that came after him. And Quentin Tarantino and Martin Scorsese are just two of many people who have who have publicly made it known that they that they love Le Dulos, and rightfully so. It's wonderful. And so before uh, before I move on to the next, the main cast of this film, Serge Reggiani. Interestingly enough, he was actually a big star in France, but he was his career had been on a, on quite a big slump for for some time up until this film, and um, he kind of credits Melville for pulling him out of it because Melville actually wanted him cast in this part. He went to the producers and said he wanted Regiani to play to play Fogel, and uh, the producers were all for it. Luckily, and he's fantastic as Fogel in this. I, I really quite like him. He's this sort of world weary ex con. And uh, Belmondo is wonderful as well. Another great turn from him in this as Cillien. And there's a great scene, a great scene from him at the beginning, or early on in the film, where he has to, he needs to get some information from Thérèse, Reggiani's lady. And uh, it's a brutal scene. He, he treats her horribly. And he sort of, he beats this information out of her about the, about the burglary that's about to go down. And that's what leads you to believe that, that he is in fact a police informant. Maintenant, chère petite madame, Soyez raisonnable et surtout, ne criez pas. Dites-moi vite où il se trouve, ce petit hôtel particulier, puisque vous y êtes allé cet après-midi. Alors 86 boulevard du Général Grenier à Neuilly. J'espère pour vous que vous ne m'avez pas menti, parce qu'on est appelé à se revoir. Uh, but he's wonderful in this. Uh, Monique Hennessy comes back. She plays uh, Thérèse, the lady to uh, Serge Reggiani's character. Jean Desailly plays the, uh, plays the cop who's trying to piece all these cases together. And Fe Fabienne Dali, who is, I believe, a Belgian actress, plays uh, Cillien's former flame, who he's trying to reunite with. And Michel Piccoli, another great French actor who is in Belle de Jour, Contempt, the great Jean-Luc Godard film, among many, many other things, a beloved French actor. He was in Atlantic City as well, the Louis Malle film. Uh, he plays one of the crime lords that uh, that Cillian is trying to make a move on. Uh, and so that about sums up Le Doulos. Unfortunately, the third film that Melville and Belmondo made together was the weakest of the three. It's called Magnet of Doom, is the English title. The French title is L'Aîné des Ferchaux, which means the eldest of the Ferchauds. So the oldest Ferchaud brother, basically. And it's adapted by a novel by Georges Simenon. Georges Simenon was a, was a Belgian writer, a very prolific writer, who uh, created the character Jules Magret, detective, who was the, uh, the lead character in... Uh, in a series of novels of his. And so Melville adapted, the, adapted uh, his book for the screen, and it's the first film that he shot in color. And so he and Belmondo reunite. Belmondo plays a, a, a failed boxer who's, who's broke. He's, he's out on his ass. And he basically weasels his way into a job as an assistant for a rich banker who has to flee France because he has a criminal past. The past is catching up on him. The authorities are sort of putting the squeeze on him. He, gets, uh, he hires Belmondo as his assistant, this banker played by Charles Vanel, and the two of them basically plan to leave France, go to the United States, pick up whatever cash this banker has, has stashed away, and the two of them are supposed to make their way south, and if need be, go to Venezuela, where, there are no, where there's no uh, extradition, where he can't be sent back to France and prosecuted. And as you watch the film over the course of it, there's this, there's this gradual power shift. Of course, at the beginning... Uh, Belmondo is the one out on, on a, out on his ass. He needs he needs a gig. He needs some money, and he wants to sort of shed himself of of his past life. 
he literally abandons his girlfriend at a cafe, leaves her penniless, sells off whatever possessions he can to take this job with, with this banker. He doesn't want any reminders of his past life, of his past failures. And so he buddies up with this banker. But of course the banker's calling the shots. He's the, he's the big shot, right? Uh, but gradually, as they make their way down south through the United States, the power begins to shift. Belmodo's character begins to take control. And of course, by the time they make it down south, uh, in the southern United States, the banker is a little sickly. He becomes far more dependent on Belmondo. Belmondo begins to mistreat him, openly disrespect him. And so the power is shifted by the time they get down there. And it becomes apparent that they're probably never going to make it to Venezuela. And I guess the big flaw of it is like, okay, you buddied up with this guy. You needed a gig. Now the power has shifted. You don't need him. You can just take his money and walk whenever you want. And yet the, the, the second half of the film kind of just drags on. And you're basically left wondering about Belmondo's character. It's like, okay, what, what is it you want? You've shed yourself of your past life. You have the upper hand on this guy. You can leave and live, live in the lap of luxury. Do whatever it is you want with his money at any time. You have no idea what this guy's motives are once that, once that power shift is, is completed. And uh, yeah, the film just kind of drags on, unfortunately. And it's, uh, it's another dud in the, in the Melville catalog, I gotta say. You can probably skip out on this one as well, to be honest. Um, and uh, the music was done by Georges Delerue, who won an Oscar for the music for A Little Romance, which we talked about on our George Roy Hill episode, if you'd like to take a listen. And again, it's more of Melville's fascination with the U.S., right? They're driving, they're driving down south, they're going through New Jersey, they show up to Frank Sinatra's house in, in Hoboken, and they gradually make their way down south, and you see Belmondo going out on the town uh, in New Orleans and so on. So there's more of that sort of fascination of Melville's with American life, American culture, and so on. And, so on. Uh, and apparently, during the making of this film, I don't know if this is true, it's... You get these little bits of trivia from IMDb. Some of them are true. Some of them are apocrypha. Uh, but apparently, Melville was uh, was not very nice to Charles Vanel during the making of this film. And he mistreated him to the point where Belmondo just got fed up. And apparently, Belmondo just up and slapped Melville in the face one day during shooting. I don't know if it's true or not, but it would certainly explain why Belmondo and Melville never worked together again. Uh, but in any case, so the main cast, Belmondo, who was actually a boxer himself in his youth... Charles Vanel, like I say, he plays the wealthy banker, uh, and he was in the the classic film The Wages of Fear, Le Salaire de la Peur, in uh, 1953, ten years prior. Michel Mercier plays a dancer lady in New Orleans that uh, Belmondo's character has a bit of a fling with, and uh, she was also in the great uh, French New Wave film Tiré sur le Pianiste, directed by François Truffaut. Stefania Sandrelli shows up in this as well. She plays a hitchhiker that they encounter over the course of their journey through America. She was in a great Italian film, Seduced and Abandoned, and uh, Divorced Italian Style with uh, Marcello Mastroianni. And that's it for Magnet of Doom, honestly. There really isn't much to it. Not worth the watch, to be honest. And so, the good thing is that the, the next film Melville made was much, much better. Uh, Le Deuxième Souffle. This came out in 1966. The title translates to Second Wind, or Second Breath, in the more literal sense. And this was ad adapted from a novel... Yet again, uh, this one by José Giovanni. The novel was published in 1958. And it follows a criminal, a career criminal, named Gu Mainda, Gustave Mainda. They call him Gu. He uh, escapes from prison. He was a former public enemy number one. And he, uh, he escapes prison. But before he can get to safety and flee the country, he needs some cabbage. And so before he can take off and start over, he has to pull off one more big score. And so he teams up with some former associates of his 
to pull off a very daring heist, but one that can net him a lot of money, a platinum heist. And so they pull it off. The police are already investigating because, of course, he's escaped from prison and he's a former public enemy number one. He pulls off this heist and the police ultimately entrap him into confessing to the crime, but the entrapment makes him out to be an informer. So his criminal associates believe that he actually ratted on them. And so even though the gig is up and that his chances of actually fleeing the country and starting over the, the, those sort of grand designs he had, that's no longer a go. And yet, knowing that his only way out is death, basically, he yet again escapes police custody, tries to track down his criminal associates or the people who want him dead, and tries to settle the score. And even though he knows his death is certain, his death is imminent, he is far more concerned with clearing his name and making it known in the underworld that he is not in fact an informant. He wants to go out with his reputation intact. And again, that carries on the theme that we mentioned in Le Doulos of these these criminals, these crooks, who despite committing robberies and very violent acts, operate by a certain code of conduct. And after he's entrapped, and Gu knows there's no there's no way out, there's no way to free him, he vows to clear his name and make it known that he is not he is not an informant. He is not a turncoat. And that becomes more important to him than anything. And it's interesting because in the opening of the film, there's a sort of epigraph that says man's only right is to choose how he dies. And that's essentially what you watch here, following the heist and after his entrapment, is he knows death is certain, and yet he wants to go out on his own terms. He wants to go out his way. And he wants to make it known that he doesn't rat on his friends. And it's another theme in the sense that, yes, you have these, on the one side, you have, on the one side of the law, you have these crooks, again, who operate by a certain code of conduct. They vow to stick to their principles. And on the other side of the law, on the right side of the law, you have the cops, who in theory are supposed to be the do-gooders, but they're often willing to do questionable things if it means they'll get results. And again, that sort of echoes Melville's feelings about the war and not holding any ill will towards the people on the other side is that the bad are not all the way bad and the good are not all the way good. There's room for nuance, there's room for ambiguity, there's a million shades of gray in between. And uh, this is a great one. The main cast, of, it's a return to form for him after the, the dud that was Magnet of Doom. And the cast of this film, Lino Ventura, Lino Ventura, who was actually Italian, he was from Parma, I believe, and uh, they moved to France when he was a kid. And he was another huge star in France. And this was the first of two occasions that he and Melville worked together, and he plays Gumenda, he's in the lead, and he's wonderful. Just a, just a, a, a unique presence on screen, and a very just sort of natural and honest actor. And he, Ventura himself was very self-effacing 
as to his abilities as an actor. He didn't he didn't take himself too seriously, and he in fact didn't really consider himself to be a serious actor at all. Although Melville was a great admirer of his, so he plays the lead in this. Paul Meurice plays the the commissaire Blot, the cop who's sort of leading the search for Gu and is trying to track him down after his escape from prison. And he's wonderful in this. He's suave and eloquent and a little kind of sort of loquacious and shrewd. And he's it's a wonderful, wonderful performance from him. I love it. Uh, Christine Fabrega is in this as well. She plays Manouche, the sister to Gu Meida's character. And this was her first starring role in a film, and she's great in this as well. I love her. Uh, uh, Raymond Pellegrin is in this as well. He plays Paul Ricci, an associate of Gumain does, and the two of them sort of pull off this platinum heist together. And Marcel Bodzufi plays Joe Ricci, the brother to Raymond Pellegrin's character, who's a shifty fucker. He's not as... He's not the man of principle that the others are. Marcel Bodzufi is actually really great in this, and he was in The French Connection as well. He shows up as a hitman. Uh, and one, probably my favorite moment in this film is actually fairly early on. So the film, op- at the very beginning, there's a, there's a barroom shooting at the, at the bar that Manouche, Christine Fabrega's character, runs. And so Paul Maurice shows up to investigate, and it's his first scene. It's the introduction to his character. And he walks into the bar, and of course he knows, like any good cop, he knows the underworld well. He knows, these, he knows all these people. He's acquainted with them at the very least, and he knows how they operate. So he, go, he goes to the bar, he goes to the crime scene, and you see him, <laughs> he's sort of cynically going one by one to every person in the bar, the bartenders, Manouche herself, her associates, and one by one, he's rattling off the rehearsed story that he's expecting to hear from them, because of course he doesn't expect any of these people to give him any information on this shooting, right? They're all going to dummy up. And it's a great one-shot, again, another wonderful one-shot take. I think it's over five minutes long, and the camera just sort of slowly moves from Maurice as he goes through the room and goes from person to person and sort of... And uh, sort of runs off this rehearsed story that, that he expects them all to give him. It's, it's wonderful. Pour le reste, messieurs, voici Alban. Il n'a absolument rien vu quand l'accident est arrivé. Il était accroupi derrière le comptoir. Il y chassait les mouches. Et lorsqu'il releva la tête, les agresseurs, les vilains, enfin ceux qui sont entrés ici, on se demande encore pourquoi avaient disparu. Alban serait parfaitement incapable de nous dire s'il s'agissait d'un homme seul ou d'une tribu de Touareg. Alban. C'est à peu près ça. Voici Manouche. De mauvaises langues diront que Jacques le notaire avait un sentiment pour elle. Mais où serait le rapport, je vous le demande. Manouche n'a rien vu. Elle était à la caisse, le nez sur une addition. Voici le second barman, Marcel le Stéphanois, si ma mémoire est bonne. Il a eu si peur en voyant entrer un homme à la mine patibulaire qu'il serait incapable de le reconnaître. Il a disparu derrière le comptoir, il en émerge à peine. C'est un craintif, Marcel. Il n'a rien vu, Marcel. Oh, ben ça alors. <laughs> Prends ton temps. Vous êtes formidable, c'est ce que je dois dire. Uh, and this one was actually not shot by Henri Deca nor Nicholas Heyer. This was shot by a guy named Marcel Combs. I am not familiar with his work, but again, this was this another wonderfully shot film and another successful film from Melville. And with that said, the film that came after it was perhaps Melville's most beloved the year after, in 1967, Le Samurai, Le Samurai. And this was the beginning of his partnership with Alain Delon. The, three, the two of them made three films together. And it stars Alain Delon as Jeff Costello. And he's a hitman. He, ca- he carries out an assassination, a contract on a nightclub owner. And the police suspect him because even though he has an alibi, the streetwise cop who's investigating thinks his alibi is too airtight, it's too good, it's too clean. And he was seen by witnesses. And so Delon's hitman becomes a prime suspect in this hit even though he has an alibi. 
Costello, Jeff, 30 ans, sans condamnation, inconnu au sommier, correspondrait au signalement donné. Il ne portait aucune arme sur lui. L'homme portait un chapeau. Mettez votre chapeau. Mais il avait une moustache, je crois. Pourquoi vous êtes-vous rasé la moustache, Costello Je n'ai jamais porté de moustache de ma vie. And the people who enlisted him to do the hit are aware of the investigation, and of course now they consider him a liability. So you basically follow Jeff Costello, this hitman, trying to outmaneuver both the cops and his criminal associates as the walls begin sort of closing in on him. And uh, it's another great film. It stars Alain Delon, like I said. He was another huge star. He and Belmondo were two of the biggest stars in France, arguably the two biggest of their time, them and uh, Louis Trunez, the great comic actor. And Melville actually wrote this part for him. And he was a huge, he, uh, he was a huge admirer of Delon's, and he actually, he actually said of Delon that he reminded him of a 30s Hollywood star, which is kind of ironic because Delon actually, over the course of his career, made several failed attempts to cross over to the United States, and he was a huge star in Europe, but for whatever reason, uh, success was elusive across the pond. Uh, but in any case, Delon is wonderful in this. Je ne parle jamais à un homme qui tient une arme dans la main. C'est une règle. Une habitude. And uh, François Perrier plays the cop who is on his trail and trying to nail him for this murder. And uh, François Perrier actually uh, was in a wonderful, wonderful Fellini film called Noti di Cabiria, Nights of Cabiria, with the great Giulietta Massina. It's a wonderful and heartbreaking film, which I highly recommend. Nathalie Delon is in this as well. She and Alain Delon were husband and wife at the time, and this was actually her first ever film. She plays his girlfriend, and she he depends on her to give him alibis whenever he goes out on his contracts and so on and so forth, so the cops are putting the squeeze on her as well. Il faut trouver le moyen de la faire craquer, alors elle parlera. Que le juge d'instruction n'est plus qu'à l'inculper de faux témoignages ou de n'importe quoi. Et le petit Jeff Costello, on le fera asseoir ici sur une chaise. Nathalie Delon and Alain Delon actually separated not long after this film was made. And rounding out the main cast is Cathy Rosier, who was actually from Martinique and she was a model in her youth. And like Nathalie Delon, this was also her first film. She plays a pianist at the nightclub where Jeff Costello carries out the hit, and she's a witness. And so she sort of plays an important role in the story, and Delon actually develops a bit of a crush on her, but she proves to be a sort of uh, an angel of death of sorts. Pourquoi, Jeff? On m'a payé pour ça. And it's a wonderful film, and yet again, you have this guy, true to the title, he lives very much like the samurais of old, and... Jeff Costello, Alain Delon's character, he lives a very austere life. Very few material possessions, very few people in his life. Not one for emotion or affection. I don't even think you see Alain Delon blink during the course of this film, without exaggeration. And he's a very sort of sullen, laconic man of few words who operates, again, much like the criminals we talked about in Melvin's earlier films, he operates on a very, very strict code. But he's out of place. He's basically an anachronism. His way of living, his way of conducting himself is, appears to be dying because he's navigating. He's trying to outmaneuver and outsmart this, these criminal associates of his who basically don't have any principles. One day he's valuable to them, the other day he's expendable. And much like Lino Ventura's character in Le Deuxième Souffle, all that's left for him to do is choose how he wants to go out. So he ultimately decides to go out on his own terms. And much like the samurais of old, he commits his own sort of form of seppuku, or seppuku, one of the two. Seppuku is basically when the samurais of old uh, would commit suicide as a way of 
it was deemed an honorable way to go out. So I suppose Alain Delon's samurai tries to go out the same way with a modern-day equivalent of seppuku, without going into detail of how he goes out. And another thing I really love about this is the is the the color palette. It doesn't romant. This is the other thing about Melville's film. It, none of them romanticize the criminal life. As interesting and as intriguing as his universe is, he he doesn't glorify the criminal life. And in fact, the atmosphere, the aesthetic of Le Samurai is actually very bleak. A lot of grays, a lot of blues. And the color palette and that sort of shitty bachelor apartment, they all just sort of highlight what a solitary, lonely, and quite frankly, unattractive life it is that a lot of these criminals lead. And uh, it's a wonderful film. A lot of people call it Melville's masterpiece, and it was a very influential film. I mean, you see it in, in many, many films that came after it. Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, the great Jim Jarmusch film with Forrest Whitaker, that, I mean, the the influence the influence uh, from Le Samurai is obvious in that film. Much like Alain Delon's character, Forrest Whitaker's samurai lives in basically in a, in, a, in a glorified pigeon coop on top of a building. Again, a very austere life, very bare bones. Not a man of many material possessions. Operates by a strict code. And like Alain Delon's character, like they even bother. Like Alain Delon's samurai has that, that huge ring of spare keys that he uses to basically steal any car he wants. And Ghost Dog has the equivalent of that in Jim Jarmusch's film. There are all these little... All these little nods and homages to Le Samurai and Ghost Dog, which is really cool. Uh, the Killer by John Woo is another another one that that you can draw a lot of parallels to this Le Samurai with. The Driver, the great Walter Hill film with uh, with Ryan O'Neill, and even Drive, the Nicholas Winding Refn film with Ryan Gosling. A lot of those, a lot of those, those two ca- those two characters in both Drive and The Driver are very very similar to Jeff Costello's character. And so the film proved to be highly influential, and it's beloved both among film buffs and among filmmakers. And uh, interestingly enough, during the making of the film, Melville's studio caught fire, his, uh, his studios uh, on, uh, on Jenner Street in, in Paris, and it was during the making of the film, it had caught fire overnight. The day after the fire, reporters were interviewing Melville, and it was interesting, he had, su- he had suspected, not so subtly, because the fire wasn't electrical, that he suspected his rival, his rival studio heads might have had something to do with it. Because apparently during that time, his studio was one of very few that was consistently in operation. But in any case, the, um, he gradually began rebuilding the studio after the fire. But uh, they had to finish shooting Le Samurai elsewhere, and it was a heartbreaking loss for Melville. And like I said, it's a, it's a wonderful film of his, and I highly recommend it. And it's, a, it's, it's often cited as Delon's best performance, and I tend to agree. He's, he really is wonderful in this. Again, another great exercise in restraint. And after this film... We go back to the days of the resistance in Nazi-occupied France. Army of Shadows. This film came out in 1969. And this was, even though it takes, it's set during World War II and it follows a group of people in the French resistance, although it's not based on Melville's own experiences in the resistance. It's actually based on a 1943 book by Joseph Kessel. And Joseph Kessel, like Melville, was of a Jewish background, served in World War I and in the Free French Forces in World War II. And Joseph Kessel also wrote the book uh, Belle de Jour, which was adapted into a great film by Louis Buñuel in 1967, I believe, with the great Catherine Deneuve. Wonderful film. Uh, and so Melville adapted uh, Army of Shadows for this film. L'Armée des Ombres is the French title. And it follows a group of members of the French Resistance as they sort of... Uh, they, you follow them as they carry out missions, um, they collaborate with the Allied forces, they kill informers, because there's a lot of treachery in the movement, 
And uh, during all of this, they try to evade capture, both by the puppet French government in Vichy, France, and by uh, the Nazi forces. And the film stars Lino Ventura. Lino Ventura, he and Melville reunited for this. He plays, plays Philippe Gerbier, who's an engineer by trade, and becomes a key member of this French resistance effort. Le mot aimer n'a de sens pour moi que s'il s'applique au patron. Je tiens à lui plus qu'à tout. Plus qu'à tout, mais moins qu'à la vie. Luc Jardy disparaissant, je voudrais tout de même vivre. Et je vais mourir. Et je n'ai pas peur. C'est impossible de ne pas avoir peur quand on va mourir. C'est parce que je suis trop borné, trop animal pour y croire. Et si je n'y crois pas jusqu'au dernier instant, jusqu'à la plus fine limite, je ne mourrai jamais. Quelle découverte. Paul Maurice comes back. He plays the uh, he plays Luc Jardy, the head of the movement, the le grand chef. Uh, Jean-Pierre Cassel is in this as well. He plays another member of the resistance, a former pilot. Jean-Pierre Cassel, father of the great French actor Vincent Cassel. And uh, Jean-Pierre Cassel himself was actually in, uh, a few years after this, he was in the great Sidney Lumet uh, version of Murder on the Orient Express in 1974 with that great cast. Sean Connery, Vanessa Redgrave, it goes on and on. A uh, wonderful French actor. Uh, Simone Signoret is in this as well. She had won an Oscar actually 10 years prior for the Jack Clayton film Room at the Top in 1959. Another great French actress. She plays Mathilde. Paul Crochet, who worked with um, Jean-Pierre Melville three times. He plays another member of the resistance in this, Félix. And I quite like him. Uh, Claude Mann, who was in the great film Bé des Anges with Jeanne Moreau many years before this. It's a film about gambling addiction. He's another member of the resistance called Le Masque. Christian Barbier plays another member of their group called Le Bison. Serge Reggiani comes back in a small part. By this time, he had actually had a successful film career, a successful singing career, rather, and he wasn't working on screen quite as much. And uh, Melville convinced him to take a small part in this as a barber. He shows up early on in the film, and it's another really good scene. Nathalie Delon has a cameo in this. She shows up as uh, briefly as... Uh, as a lady friend of Jean-Pierre Cassel's character. And Jean-Marie Robin, who was in Le Silence de la Mer 20 years prior, he comes back in this in a small part as a wealthy baron who contributes to the resistance. And so Melville knew Ventura was actually right for Gerbier. He wanted him to play Philippe Gerbier from the time they were making Le Deuxième Souffle, actually, and he had told Ventura this uh, during the making of Le Deuxième Souffle a few years prior. And... Um, this film is great primarily because, one, it goes back to, like Le Samurai, it has a very, very bleak aesthetic and a very bleak tone to it. Again, the color palette, the blues, the grays, it kind of feels like there's a haze over every shot. I don't know how that was done or if it was just me, but again, it's a very bleak and sort of solitary look at the resistance efforts. And it's not, it doesn't romanticize the resistance, even though Melville himself was actually fond of his time in the war. He admitted several times in interviews. This film doesn't romanticize the resistance efforts. It's not self-congratulatory in any way. They're not patting themselves on the back. It's really a, a group of people who are doing, who are committing heroic acts. They're doing the right thing, even though technically they're on the wrong side of the law. And yet the film doesn't really pay, paint them as these, these great heroes. Again, like I said, it's a very bleak portrayal of people who are basically doing a thankless job leading a very solitary life. Yet again, it doesn't romanticize their efforts. And again, much like the, the characters in, in Melville's crime films, they're struggling to stick to their principles, their code, their, uh, and putting the movement first 
the resistance comes above all else. The resistance, no one person is bigger than the effort. It's about the good of the resistance. It's about the cause. The cause comes first. And of course, they face many, many moral dilemmas over the course of their efforts that sort of bring that, bring that set of principles into question, and they're forced to make some very difficult and uh, polarizing decisions. Mathilde a liquidé d'extrême urgence et par tous les moyens. Je parlerai. Je toucherai pas, Madame Mathilde. J'ai travaillé avec elle. J'ai eu la mise sauvée par elle. Je l'ai vue dans la cour de la Gestapo à Lyon. C'est une grande femme. Les hommes, quand il le faut. Tant que vous voulez. Mais Madame Mathilde, et moi en vie, ça, jamais. Il n'y a pas à discuter, Guillaume. Elle doit disparaître, elle disparaîtra. Oh, vous ne ferez pas ça. Nous avons d'autres tueurs que vous. And it's another wonderful film. And there's this great, some other lovely visuals in this. There's that great opening shot of the Arc de Triomphe at the beginning of the film. And again, it's just a one single shot, no camera movement. And it's just the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. And you watch the, the Nazi forces just marching past it. And immediately it's a very sad and bleak, <laughs> immediately sets a very sad and bleak tone. And it immediately tells you where you are. You're in France, you're in the capital. And the irony of, of a monument called the Ark of Triumph as the opposing forces who are occupying France are marching past it. And there's another great shot of, at, at the beginning of the film, Ventura's character is, is, is captured and he's sent to a camp, an internment camp. And there's a great shot of him walking through the campgrounds and listing the groups of people who were, who were imprisoned in the camp with him. And as he's walking through the yard, you overhear the chatter of various groups and so on. It's, a, it's another really, really lovely shot. Interestingly enough... So in the film, there's a brief moment of Charles de Gaulle pinning a medal on Paul Maurice's character for his efforts in the resistance. And so by the time the film came out, Charles de Gaulle was, had become a bit of a polarizing figure. He wasn't very beloved in France. Although he was a seminal figure of the French resistance during World War II, uh, cut to one generation later, um, France has gone through the period of civil unrest, through the May of 68 revolutions. And of course, uh, de Gaulle was president during that time, so he had sort of fallen out of favor with uh, with much of the French public by the time Army of Shadows came out and because the film depicts de Gaulle however briefly pinning a medal on uh, on Paul Maurice's character a lot of critics in France sort of uh, kind of took a hatchet to the film as as great as it is they sort of condemned it for its supposed glorification of Charles de Gaulle and so on and so forth and the critics of the Cage de Cinema actually were not very kind to Army of Shadows Although many, many years later, in the mid-90s, I believe, uh, they did a sort of a reappraisal of Army of Shadows, and they were much more complimentary towards it. And because of the reception it got when it came out in the late 60s, uh, Army of Shadows didn't get released in the United States at the time that it was made, and it, um, American audiences didn't get to see it until 2006, long, long after Jean-Pierre Melville had died. And um, it was released in the United States in 2006 to much acclaim, so it got a bit of a second life, a bit of a, resur of a resurgence, and it did get the acclaim that it deserved. And like I said, it, it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. Fantastic cast. And uh, like I said, I love that, it's, that it doesn't glorify the resistance. It doesn't romanticize that, that time of the war. It doesn't pat itself on the back. It's just a sort of unvarnished, bleak, and uh, realistic portrayal of, uh, of a group of people doing a thankless yet noble job. So we've got another quick turnaround from Elville. His next film came out the year after, in 1970. This is called Le Cercle Rouge. The Red Circle. 
and this was written by Medvedev yet again, and he goes back to the cops and robbers. And so it follows an ex-con, played by Alain Delon yet again, who joins forces with a pair of criminals to pull off a very intricate and daring heist of a jeweler in Paris. So Alain Delon plays the ex-con. He joins forces with Jean-Maria Volontaire's character, who is a criminal who's escaped police custody. He's on the run. And the third criminal in their trio is an alcoholic ex-cop played by the great Yves Montan. So the three of them are this trio. They join forces to pull off this very sort of elaborate heist in Paris. Meanwhile, the police, of course, are hot on the trail of Jean-Maria Volontaire's character. Like I said, he was a prisoner. André Bourville, the great André Bourville, who plays the detective of this film, was escorting Volontaire's character, presumably to prison. Volontaire escapes his, his grasp on a train. And so Bourville's efforts to track Volontaire's character down lead him to this trio, lead him to the heist. And of course, you know, the plot thickens, shenanigans ensue, a showdown is inevitable. And uh, let's just run through the main cast before we get into the nitty-gritty. Alain Delon, second film he and Melville made together. Another sort of stoic, sullen, and laconic, you know, ex-con, man of few words. Alain Delon, Jean-Marie Volonté, fantastic Italian actor. Probably best known on this side of the pond for uh, his spaghetti westerns. He was in the Man With No Name trilogy, the great Sergio Leone uh, trilogy of spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood. He was in the first two, A Fistful of Dollars and For a Few Dollars More. And he also did a lot of work with the Italian director Elio Petri in, in Italy. Um, namely, the great film, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion. This came out also, I believe, in 1970 or 71. And it's a wonderful, wonderful performance from Volonté. I highly recommend it. So he is the ex-con who, is, uh, who escapes custody. In this film, Le Sac Rouge, Yves Montand shows up, like I said. Another Italian actor who moved to France as a youth, like Lino Ventura. His real name is Ivo Livi. They, he moved to Marseille when he was still a toddler with his family, and he grew up in France. And he was also married to Simone Signoret, who moved with, who worked with Melville on Army of Shadows. Bourville, like I said, André Bourville, who was primarily known as a comic actor. He was a big star in France, beloved guy. He had worked with uh, Louis de Funès on these two very successful comedies, Le Corneau and La Grande Vadrouille. So this was a very different turn from him playing this sort of understated, subtle, yet calculating police detective. And he's great in it. He's He really is wonderful. Died very young, unfortunately. He died, I believe, before the film came out. He'd been battling Collar Syndrome, which I believe is a form of myeloma, and he died in his 50s, uh, shortly before the film was released, unfortunately. François Perrier comes back. He played a cop in Le Samurai, and he is on the other side of the law in this one. He plays a nightclub owner who has uh, some criminal ties to some, some underworld figures. And Bourville tries to put the squeeze on him to get him to rat out on, on his associates and so on. Tu as lu les journaux du soir, tu as entendu la radio, ou vu la télé mm -hmm. Trouve-moi vos gères. Pas plus. Je connais même pas. Et ça C'est un sosie. Puisque tu te connaissais, tu en entendras parler. Après votre visite de ce soir, j'en doute. Je te le répète, parleur des ennuis que tu as eu au sujet de ton affaire. Si tu veux même, pour ton service, je te fais emballer demain pour 48 heures. Comme ça. And rounding out the main cast is Paul Crochet, who comes back. He was in Army of Shadows. He comes back to work with Melville a second time, and he plays a fence. 
that the trio enlist to move the uh, the jewels for them to find a buyer for the merchandise. He plays a sort of a middleman. And Paul Amio shows up in a small role as well as the chief of police. And he has a memorable scene early on in the film where he believes, he says, he says, all men are guilty. All men have, a, have a, an inner criminal of sorts. And it's up to, it's up to the law to sort, of, uh, to sort of flush it out of them. And um, this is another great one. I mean, there, there's some really memorable moments in this. The, there's a great, one thing I love is uh, the introduction to Yves Montand's character. He doesn't show up until about an hour into the film. But like I said, he plays an, he plays an alcoholic ex-cop who's a crack shot. He's an excellent marksman. And so they need his services to carry out this heist. And your introduction to Yves Montand, you see him in his bedroom and he's going through alcohol withdrawal. And he's got the sweats and he's writhing in bed and he's having these, these visions, this hallucination of all kinds of animals sort of crawling up his body. Rats, serpents, lizards, while he's going through this delirium tremens, it's called. A severe form of alcohol withdrawal. And that wasn't faked. If you watch it in the film, uh, those were real rats, real real serpents, real lizards crawling up Yves Montand's body. And it's a great introduction to his character and a really, really cleverly, clever way of, um, of, depicting, of depicting the delirium tremens, that alcohol withdrawal. It's a great, great, great scene. And what stands out most from this film is the heist sequence. So this, the heist sequence that's depicted in the film, kind of a spoiler, but in any case, the heist is very, very intricate. There's a lot of moving parts, a lot of shit they gotta do. And the heist is basically shot in real time. It takes about a half hour. And of course there are cuts, it's not like one take. This would have been impossible to shoot in a, in a single take, it's impossible. The heist is way too elaborate, way too intricate, way too many twists and turns. But the entire heist is shot in real time. You, you, the viewer basically follows these thieves step by step through this elaborate heist from start to finish. And there's no music. There's an, almost no dialogue. Maybe a line or two is spoken. And uh, it's a great way of building tension. Although, even though the film is known for this, for the elaborate heist sequence, uh, Melville wasn't the first to do this. Actually, in the mid-50s, in 1955, there's a great Jules Dassin film called Rififi. And that's another film that's known for its elaborate heist sequence. And again, Rififi did it first, basically, the, the climactic heist sequence that, again, next to no dialogue, no music, and it just sort of walks the viewer through this this heist step by step. So Rififi did it first, and we're going to talk about Jules Dassin very shortly on this show. Um, but even still, uh, Le Sac Rouge became famous for that sequence, and rightfully so. It's one, it's wonderful. And again, it touches upon that sort of honor among thieves thing. I mean, the the Alain Delon and Jean Maria Volontaire's characters—they basically cross paths kind of by chance, and the two of them are are sort of sizing each other up at the very beginning. They're kind of at odds. And yet it's this sort of unspoken, this unspoken code, this sort of honor among thieves thing that kind of bonds them together, even though they're total strangers. What did you think when I was hidden in your car? That you were the man on the radio talking, that the police were searching. I was going to pass a barrage in the salon. And you didn't have fear? Of what? Of me, first. And then, when I discovered in your mask, for example. And again, it's, a, it's that other recurring theme in Melville's work. It's the crooks with the code of honor and a certain set of principles clashing with these cops who yet again are willing to do morally questionable things if it means it'll break the case. 
And the film was a, a huge success in France, one of its more successful films, and rightfully so. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't get uh, released in the U.S. until many, many years later. And even the U.S. release, several cuts of the film exist. They, they trimmed it down significantly for the U.S. release. The full version is about two hours and 20 minutes, two and a half hours, and I highly recommend watching the, f the, the full version. The, film ver the full version is the way to go. And that brings us to Melville's final film. This is called Un Flic. Flic is a slang term for cop, so the French title translates to a cop, basically. Uh, this came out in 1972. The English title is Dirty Money, which I'm not a fan of, but in any case. So this was written and directed by Melville yet again, and it reunites him with Alain Delon. This time, Delon is on the other side of the law. He plays a cop. But it's more of that sort of sullen, laconic, man-a-few-words thing. It's a guy who, who's basically so consumed by his work. He's a busy man. <laughs> and he has basically become one with the underworld that he is tasked with investigating every night. So Alain Delon is the lead. Paul Crochet comes back as his partner. And it follows Delon as he sort of crosses paths or sort of tries to track down a crew of thieves led by Richard Crenna who have pulled off a pair of intricate heists. Meanwhile, Delon and Crenna's characters are actually friends or at the very least acquaintances and Delon's character is also having an affair with Catherine Deneuve who is supposed to be Richard Crenna's girlfriend in the film. So there's this strange sort of love triangle happening. And so the main cast, like I said, Alain Delon, the third and last film that he and Melville would make together, Richard Crenna, like I said, was from the United States. He was from Los Angeles. Um, I believe he does his dialogue in French, it looks like, although his voice was dubbed for this. Not a native French speaker, of course. Uh, he was in The Sand Pebbles with Steve McQueen in the mid-60s. He was also in Body Heat, and uh, he may be best known as the Colonel in Rambo. I believe he was in the first three Rambo films, and he's really good in this. Another sort of suave and debonair criminal ringleader, if you will, who also owns a nightclub. Catherine Deneuve shows up in this as well, the wonderful Catherine Deneuve. I mentioned Belle de Jour before. She was in that and uh, Tristana as well, the two films she made with Luis Buñuel. She is a fantastic, fantastic actress. And I kind of wish there was more of her in this. And she plays the lady of Richard Crenna's character, who is also not above getting her hands dirty. Uh, Paul Crochet, like I mentioned before, the third film he and Melville made together. Uh, another Melville regular, and I really quite like him. He doesn't have a ton to do in this, but I always enjoy watching him. Great character actor. Riccardo Cucciola, an Italian actor, is in this as well. He was in the film Sacco and Vanzetti with Gian Maria Volonté, who we mentioned earlier, that came out in 1971 to very much acclaim in Europe. And Michael Conrad is in this as well, uh, another American actor who is in Hill Street Blues, plays the desk sergeant. Uh, he, is, he and Riccardo Cucciola are both in Richard Crenna's gang of thieves, and Conrad is basically the wheelman. And lastly, Jean Desailly, who is in uh, Le Doulos, uh, he shows up in this in a small part. He plays a gay man who's robbed of uh, robbed of a precious statue by a young hustler that he's uh, that he's brought home. And it's a it's a good film, but it's more of the same. It's Melville's last one, and I've seen it a couple times, and I enjoy it genuinely. But you kind of feel like Melville was at the end of his rope with the whole criminal underworld and that sort of seedy underbelly that he had created. He had kind of worn that whole thing out by this time. It feels like. The train heist is really cool, but like I said, it's more of the same. There's a, there's a train heist that the Richard Crenna's gang pull off, and it's ambitious, but again, it's sort of it's pretty much the same stunt they try to pull in Le Sac Rouge. They have a twenty the thieves have a twenty minute window to rob a drug mule aboard a moving train. They have a twenty minute window, so the heist is shot in real time, 
you again, you follow Richard Crenna and his gang as they try to execute this elaborate heist step by step on the train. The heist itself, like I said, shot in real time. It takes 20 minutes. It's very well done. But yet it's more of the same, like it's been done before. He had just done it in his previous film, Le Sac Rouge. Again, there's that same sort of muted, bleak color palette and aesthetic. And it's a little misleading as well, because the French title, as I said, is Un Flic, a cop. So one would think maybe the cop will be more at the center of this than the criminals, like in like in, like in in Melville's previous works. But contrarily, unfortunately, it, it is more of the same. I mean, the, the, the focus is much more, it feels like at least, is much more on the crooks. Than, uh, than the cops. Salut, ça va? Soir. Alors? Ça se fera par le chemin de fer, le Paris-Lisbonne, avec la complicité d'un douanier. De jour ou de nuit? Je sais pas encore. Quand, à peu près? Dès qu'ils auront reçu la marchandise, ils l'expédieront plus vite à Paris. T'es sûr qu'elle peut pas être convoyée par quelqu'un d'autre que ton gars? Sûr. Il le paye assez cher pour ça. Il vit là-dessus depuis près d'un an et il ne vit pas mal. Tu connais son nom? Son prénom seulement et son sobriquet, Mathieu Lavalise. C'est un passeur professionnel, un spécialiste. Bon, bah si tout va bien, on te la paix. Merci, Edouard. And interesting, interestingly enough, sort of, not to add insult to injury, but even more of the same, the, the car driven at, in the opening heist, the opening bank robbery, the thieves drive a black Plymouth, and it's the exact same car that Alain Delon drives in Le Cercle Rouge. <laughs> So yeah, it's all these little sort of indications that Melville is kind of playing out his own formula, which is unfortunate. That said, that said uh, I have seen the film a couple times, and I do enjoy watching it. Unfortunately, the film, I don't think it was a dud at the box office necessarily, but it didn't get the best reception, and Melville was very hurt by that. And unfortunately, less than a year after the film came out, the film came out in October of 72, I believe, and on August 2nd of 1973, Melville died of a sudden heart attack at the age of 55. So we mentioned at the beginning of our episode, at the, at the top of our show, that his brother Jacques Rombach had a weak heart. And Jean-Pierre, the other Melville brother, the other Grombach brother, rather, his heart failed him. He had been, he had been working on his next film, and it was, it was going to be a spy film called Contre Enquête with Yves Montand. The two of them were going to reunite and work together again after Le Sac Rouge. And Melville was at a Paris hotel... And he was having dinner with the writer Philippe Labreau. And uh, while they were having dinner, he had a sudden heart attack and he died. And like I said, he was a young man, 55 years old. However, people close to him and certain friends suspect that the, the disappointment surrounding the reception of Renflick and the stress of putting his next film together, uh, he, had been, he had been working on the script at the time, the, 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 the stress of all that, Melville's friends suspect sort of contributed to his decline and to his death, his early death. And so if I can, in summation, just for a minute I'd like to talk about the kind of, just to give an idea of the kind of director he was. And a bit, a, a little bit of a look into the kind of man he was. For one thing, Melville was a self-proclaimed misanthrope. He didn't like people. And he kept a very, very close circle. He, beyond his wife Florence, who everybody called Flo, his mother, his nephews, Melville himself never had any children. And he had a few close friends, and that was it. He didn't have a very huge circle of friends. He was a self-proclaimed night owl. He especially enjoyed writing at night, and often would write through the night and into the morning. And he was also a homebody. He actually lived, when he had his studio, the, the studios on Jenner Street in Paris's 13th Ward, he actually lived directly above the studio. And he talked about how he, how he enjoyed getting up in the middle of the night, 
say three in the morning and just walking downstairs to his studio and preparing for the coming day shoot by himself. And also, as far as the kind of work he liked to do, he, he said himself that he, he much preferred adapting novels and existing works for the screen as opposed to writing his own original screenplays. And he would say that by the time, for one thing, he was very self-effacing about his, his abilities as a writer. As much as he enjoyed doing it, um, he didn't think of himself as a particularly great writer. And he, he also said that when he, was, when he would write his own original screenplays, oftentimes, by the time the script was ready to shoot, he had often become bored with it. Ce qui m'intéresse le plus, c'est toujours de faire un film d'après un livre. Parce que quand j'écris un scénario original, je m'aperçois qu'une fois que je l'ai écrit, je n'ai absolument plus envie de le tourner. J'ai le sentiment de recommencer le, le même travail que j'ai déjà fait. Tandis que tourner l'histoire qu'un autre a écrit est beaucoup plus agréable, beaucoup moins lassant. Maintenant, je ne fais plus ce que je faisais il y a 20 ans, quand j'étais extrêmement fidèle dans mes adaptations. Au contraire, maintenant, je me sens de plus en plus le besoin de mettre les personnages d'un livre écrit par un autre à la mesure des personnages que je comprends bien, que j'aime bien, qui ne sont pas obligatoirement ceux de l'auteur. And that said, like I said, he loved writing, and his two favorite parts of the filmmaking process were actually the writing process and the editing process. So the time of inspiration, when the idea and the story are beginning to take form, and the time of putting the finishing touches on it. And he actually wasn't a big fan of the shooting process itself. In an interview that I saw of his when I was sort of preparing for this episode, he, uh, he was asked about working with actors. And he said, in fact, that... <laughs> this is interesting because he said, he said, in fact, that a director had to be gentle with, with the actors that he worked with. He, he, directors weren't supposed to push their actors very hard, and that, in fact, he was harder on the crew members and the people working behind the camera than with the people working in front of it. Est-ce que vous aimez tourner? Ah, pas du tout. Le tournage est une chose abominable. Moi, je dis que c'est la formalité fastidieuse. Je déteste tourner. La, le, le seul répit que je peux trouver dans, dans cette pénible affaire, c'est d'avoir à un moment la chose merveilleuse à faire, qui est la direction des comédiens. Mais est-ce que vous êtes dur avec les acteurs, avec les gens avec qui vous travaillez Ah non, pas du tout avec les acteurs. Ce serait une bêtise. On ne peut pas être dur avec un acteur, avec aucun acteur d'aucune sorte. Parce que... C'est une chose fragile. C'est très difficile d'être devant une caméra et de parler devant un micro et d'avoir l'air naturel. That said, uh, François Perrier, for one, actually called Melville a tyrant. The two of them actually worked together twice. But Perrier said that uh, Melville asked a lot of his actors, especially because he enjoyed shooting long takes. And Perrier, as much as he commended Melville for his knowledge of cinema, his encyclopedic knowledge, Uh, he actually referred to Melville as a, as a tyrant during their time working together. And not just that. Like I said, he and Belmondo didn't work together again after Magnet of Doom. There's that story about, you know, him slapping Melville over his mistreatment of Charles Vanel. Melville himself admitted later on, after Army of Shadows was made, that he and Lino Ventura actually had a falling out. They weren't on good terms, they weren't speaking to each other. They, the two of them had very strong personalities and they butted heads. And not just that... Uh, around the time Un Flick was finished, he and Alain Delon had a falling out. The two of them had actually become very, very close friends. Like I said, Melville wrote Le Samurai for Delon specifically. He was very fond of him. And the two of them had bonded over their love of America and American culture and so on. But unfortunately, the two of them had had a falling out as well. So despite 
Despite what Melville said about, you know, the required treatment of actors, he, uh, <laughs> he actually clashed with a few of them over the course of his life and his career. Um, also, another thing worth noting, and one thing I didn't really go into detail about, uh, another thing worth mentioning, much like Ida Lupino and John Cassavetes, who we covered in our previous episodes, uh, Jean-Pierre Melville went the independent route. He couldn't get work as an assistant director after the war, so he basically went his own way. And he was the only French director of his era to actually own his own studio. Not the first ever director to do it. Charlie Chaplin, among others, had, had his own studio uh, when he was working. But of his time, at that time in French cinema, Medville was the only director basically with his own shop. And uh, he was also quoted as saying that he preferred going it alone, ultimately. Primarily because he had seen how men could turn on each other. And I suppose maybe that's also informed by his experience during the war, having seen the darker sides of man. So maybe that's what influenced his, his going solo. And it's interesting looking at his work. I mean, the, the, the threads that run through them, I mean, they're, they're very masculine stories. They're, quite frankly, there aren't a lot of women playing key roles in Melville's film. There are exceptions like Léon Morin-Prêtre and uh, Le Deuxième Souffle, among others. But for the most part, these are masculine stories. And it's where his, his love of film noir and westerns especially shows, is that these, these guys are not fit for, for civilian life. They're not fit for, for conventional society. They're men of few words. They don't seem to have much emotional range in them. They don't say very much. They're laconic, sullen. And they don't have very much beyond that sort of code of honor that we, we've talked about a few times so far. Basically, all they have is their principles and the knowledge that they're probably all destined for an early grave. And it's funny, looking at Melville himself, he actually looked like one of his anti-heroes. He used to wear, he used to wear the trench coat and the, the Stetson hat and the Ray-Ban glasses. Those became like his, his trademarks of sorts. And again, we talk about the crooks, the crooks with the coat of honor versus the sort of the gangsterish, the gangsterish cops, if you will, and how the cops are willing to do willing to sort of skew their own moral compasses if it means it'll get them results, if it means they'll get a break in their case. And you see it in Bob Le Flambeur, for instance. Guy de Combe's character actually lets a domestic abuser off the hook on the condition that he'll, in, he'll be an informant for him and bring him a case. Or in Le Deuxième Souffle, for instance, the way the police sort of entrap Guy Mainda into confessing his involvement in the crime and make him out to be an informant. Or... In Le Cercle Rouge, for instance, André Bourville's character, actually, he's trying to get François Perrier's character to crack and give him information. Of course, Perrier's character isn't going for it. He's a, he's a tough nut to crack. And so he brings in François Perrier's son on a bogus drug charge, which actually turns out to be true, as a way of getting him to, to, uh, to bend to his will. And so the cops aren't above doing questionable things, immoral things, if it means it'll get them results. And yet... In these films, the gangsters and the cops actually have a sort of mutual respect for each other. That's certainly the case in Le Deuxième Souffle, between Paul Maurice and Lino Ventura's characters. And I guess that mutual respect is there because each side knows that each side knows it can't exist without the other. The two are directly dependent on each other. They're, they're yin and yang. And I guess that's also why Melville doesn't paint one side as morally superior to the other. They just, they just are what they are. There's nuance. Like I said, there's good and bad in both. 
And it's interesting because, like we, like we said before, Melville influenced a lot of filmmakers that came after him. And even though he's repeatedly associated with the French New Wave, he was able to create his own universe in his films. And it's not a universe that's entirely unfamiliar. One, because, I mean, the film noir is a very popular genre that came before him. And, of course, the whole... The cops and robbers, the gangster genres, the crime films, and all that—that they, they all that stuff remains incredibly popular in cinema. So it's not, in a way, it's not something audiences haven't seen before. But even with, but even with the somewhat familiar visuals, the the smoke-filled rooms, the fedoras, the trench coats, the nicknames, the jazzy scores, Melville still manages to create a sort of singular universe with these familiar visuals. It's his Paris. It's his underworld. And he had a, a remarkable way of sort of hooking you in and making you go along with the ride from the opening frame. I mean, we mentioned in, with, with Le Doulos when, uh, when Serge Reggiani is just walking through the underpass. It's not an elaborate or intricate scene by any means. It's just a one-shot take of a, uh, of a guy walking to a safe house. And yet immediately you know where you are. You know that what this universe is but not in a bad way. It's just in a way that it brings you in. There's an intimacy to it. He just had a way of pulling you in from the first frame. And I love that about his films. And so, with that said, that's about all I got on the great Jean-Pierre Melville. And so before I leave you, I just want to remind you, you can find us on the Spotify, the Apple Podcasts, and the Google Podcasts. Just look up Closed Set with T. Alexis. Please listen, subscribe, check out our previous episodes. Uh, and please watch these, please take a look at the work of Jean-Pierre Melville, really. Uh, Le Silence de la Mer, Les Enfants Terribles, uh, Le Doulos, Léon Morin Prêtre. Honestly, one of very few directors with more hits than misses, to be honest. All his, most of his body of work is well worth the watch. So please check them out. Like I said, listen, subscribe, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram at Close Set Podcast. I'll be putting out updates links to documentaries and interviews with Jean-Pierre Melville as well. And you can email us as well at uh, closesetpod at gmail.com, closesetpod at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for bearing with me. We went a little long today, but we had a lot to get to. Uh, and I hope you enjoy. And so with that said, until next time, bye-bye. Comment trouvez-vous vos films? Oh, je ne les trouve pas. Je, je t'essaie d'ailleurs pas de les trouver. Je l'ai fait, je ne peux pas arriver à être objectif, c'est pas possible. Euh, bon, je ne me souviens que de la difficulté que j'ai éprouvée à tourner les plans. J'ai malheureusement beaucoup de mémoire, donc je ne peux pas voir mes films, c'est impossible.